I had a fry every day this summer. Or from that building site. You know, now again, we didn't win, so maybe it wasn't the right thing to do. <laughs> <laughs> I should have been there the food and the pasta. <laughs> OTB AM. Live, weekday mornings from 7.30 on the OTB Sports app. OTB AM. With Gillette. Get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor with exfoliating bar. Right, very welcome along. It's Monday morning. We are bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. It's Jar and Nathan with you all the way through until 10 this morning. How are you, uh, Nathan? I'm all right. Busy weekend for you? Well, quiet weekend, Jar. Feet up. Front of the fire for the weekend. Where else would you want to be? Well, uh, according to your Instagram feed, which was lit, you were hanging out with Glenn Hansard and the stars. All the stars. Well, not so much hanging out as stalking, I would say, Glenn Hansard. You know, what, a thousand different acts to go and see, and I just went to see Glenn Hansard twice. Uh, it did was you know most he, enjoyable. Did you know he was playing twice? I, I, first time I, w- I went down to Electric Picnic on a Friday night and was wandering around and was right down the far, far end, I think, a true trench town and spotted a, just a little sort of circus tent, had a look in, didn't look like there was much going on. And lo and behold, Glenn Hansard's just sitting there playing a few songs. There was about 20 people in there. Nothing happened. I thought I'd sit here for an hour and enjoy this. Uh, went back the night afterwards after finding uh, the world's greatest snug in a similar part of uh, Electric Picnic. We found six snugs together, myself and Adrian Barry. They were basically uh, just on the back of trailers. Each bar, tiny little bar, and then a snug that f- could seat four people. One bar served beer, one served gin, one served whiskey, one served rum. And you could just go around between them. So we uh, went around between them. And then we said, we go back and watch Glen Hansard. And this time there was about 2,000 people trying to get it at Glen Hansard. And it was a bit of a struggle. But uh, yeah, it was a... Most enjoyable trip to Electric Picnic, despite the rain. And they, they let you in because you had been there the night before and were like, oh, gee. Oh, ex- obviously, obviously. How was your Electric Picnic experience? Uh, pretty good, yeah. Uh, limited, da- up and down on the same day. Um, but I actually didn't really want to go. Uh, you know, all week I was like, oh, this is going to be too much. Uh, really? What, what? I mean, first off, we're too old. I'm using uh, not the royal we, you and me. Uh, too old for this. But actually, you get down there and it's full of old people. It's great. It is. No, there's a, there's a proper mix. I went down on Friday, I drove down, and I brought my 10-year-old down to see Dermot Kennedy, and it was full of kids. There is a definite sense when you're down there, and anyone who's been down there and is, you know, is of our age and goes, while it's bright, until the darkness descends, it is a brilliant place to bring the kids. Once the darkness descends, there's definitely a change, understandably, yeah, understandably a change in uh, the People tone start pissing in public. Well, exactly, exactly. Um, so, yeah, we had a cracking day on Saturday. We were uh, live in the uh, Here Now tent with a live crappy quiz. I won't lie. Uh, I, I had a look in on Friday evening. It was very quiet in that sort of area of electric picking. I thought, ooh, this, mightn't be, this might be a bit of a struggle tomorrow. And then I went down at about uh, an hour and a half before our gig, and you couldn't move. I thought, wow, people are really up for this. I turned out Blind Boy was on just before us. Packed out the tent. Yeah, which was interesting. Uh, maybe you'd flip the order next time. That would be the one. Which would be the support act. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that would be more... I, I think the hope was put him on and it would start raining and nobody would leave. Uh, but actually, we had our own crowd and everybody yeah. left after we were over and then they obviously came back for people after us. But uh, it was good. It was very good. Who won the crappy quiz? I can't remember. I, it, it was so. It was even more shambolic than normal. We, had, shambolic. Uh, we had either a... Who won, Nathan? We had either a Barry Keoghan lookalike or it was actually Barry Keoghan. I still can't figure out which uh, keeping score. And I think, Jer, he suggested that you won. Ah. Oh. How, how could I have forgotten? Well it's, done. It's uh, 7.34 this morning. If you want to get in touch, 0879180180 is the WhatsApp number. Or, of course, you can always uh, leave a comment in the YouTube stream. We are uh, very busy today, so we're going to get straight down to business. Performance rankings coming up in a second. Samuel Luckhurst, the Manchester Evening News Man United correspondent, at 10 past 8. Sports pages and the GA Roundup 
from Colin Milani. Uh, Harriet Pryor is going to join us for the Liverpool post-mortem of the weekend. Uh, Quinn is going to join us at 10 past nine. Maybe it's not a post-mortem after an ill draw of the derby, but it feels a little bit like the season's getting away from them. And then some Kenny Cunningham goodness who was on commentary alongside Nathan for the big game yesterday. But uh, yeah, it is 7.34. Let's bring you the Gillette Labs performance rankings. You know, that wasn't an All-Ireland winning performance. Probably should have won the game based on the second half performance. Is it a step too far to say it was the performance so far of the World Cup? Maybe not. OTBAN's performance rankings with Gillette. I'm, I'm, I'm scratching my head at performances which just lacked that intensity. So if you're brand new to this, it's very straightforward. We have a traffic light system. Somebody's in green, somebody's in amber, somebody's in red. And you can enter, uh, you can play along at home. Uh, as I said, um, however you want to get involved, but ideally do it on a Sunday night on our Instagram page. So if you're not following us on Instagram, get over there, follow us on Instagram. You'll see the, the uh, opportunity to put something in the box on Instagram. Uh, you can put it in the box in the comments as well at the moment and tell us who you think should be uh, green, red and amber. Man United have lived in the red for months and months oh. and months and months and months and months and months. Will they make the performance rankings today? I'm not sure because I'm not doing them. You are, Nathan. Well, you say that, Chair. Let's start then with the red at Arsenal. Just to be absolutely clear, I think Arsenal should be in the orange. I think they should be in the orange, but Jair has insisted that they are in the red because they lost one game. Apparently, you're not allowed to lose a single game in the Premier League this season. Well, I started with five victories in a row, absolutely dominant after an hour, and end up losing. Does that say it's same old Arsenal? I don't think that means it's same old Arsenal. Does it not mean exactly same old Arsenal, where no. they're very good in uh, very important parts of the game, but not the one that really matters, which is actually winning matches? Is it not an, an in-belt... F- I really wish Owen was here. Not, not the first and last time I'm going to say this. But just to be like, pick away at the scab of his self-doubt, which had like crusted over the last year, and was like, no, actually, you know, maybe... maybe. He, he couldn't bring himself to believe the good times were here. He couldn't... Jack made his debut sitting in that very chair last week and he's like look there's still something flaky about this Arsenal I can't put my finger on it well Marcus Rashford put his finger on it uh, Christian Eriksen ripped off that scab and it's the same old Arsenal underneath it's not the same old Arsenal Why underneath not? because the high point of this Arsenal is way ahead of where they've been in previous years they were brilliant for the first 20 minutes scuttling around yesterday. the potential qualification for the Champions Absolutely. League but What's the expectation? Should they be coming in this year to win the league? Like, are you thinking that this is an Arsenal squad ready to win a league title? I think they should after finish all best the of the rest. Third, like they should—is that not what they? Well, I think like, there's every chance they finish best of the we're rest. We're splitting hairs here, really. You think they're going to compete to qualify for the Champions League? They should be like, oh, we're a Champions League team. Otherwise, they like in the last they haven't been a Champions League team since Arsene Wenger left. No, like they have so, quality throughout their squad that they haven't had for at least a decade at this stage. And yes, they were beaten yesterday, and maybe there was a bit of naivety in their defending at times. But they were, at at that moment in the game when Manchester United got their second goal, Arsenal were ripping them to shreds. They were growing in confidence. They were pushing for a second goal, and maybe they lost a run of themselves. Maybe there's a bit of inexperience when it comes to game management and how you build on the momentum that you have without losing the run of yourself. And maybe that is same old Arsenal, but I don't believe it. I don't think they're the finished article. I think in the middle of midfield, there's still something not quite there. Well, they have injuries in the middle of midfield. Well, they- That's why they were going after Douglas Luiz. Right, and, and some other players in the... In the well, they still have Granit Xhaka and Sambi Lukongo were in there yesterday. And they, as you said, have a couple of injuries and maybe Zinchenko is there. But like, they were the better team for large parts. Large parts. Story of Arsenal's life. But better, not, the better team. They have been nowhere near, nowhere near the level they've got to so far this season. Okay, but who have they beaten? the last four or five years. Who have they beaten so far this season? But what? They've, so what? They lost one game. But who has anyone beaten? Like, they were top of the league. They won their first five games. That's all you can do. 
And they were brilliant. Like, they were the better, they were by far and away the better team. Like, Manchester United couldn't get out of their own half for the first 20 minutes of the second half. I'm not saying United didn't deserve to win it with the way they got their goals and scored two brilliant, brilliant counter-attacking goals. But the, the attempt to overreact to Arsenal losing one game, I, I, I just don't understand it. Okay. Listen, maybe they, for a lot of people, clearly there is 10 years of doubt. Yeah, that's the problem. That is there to think, oh, like, how do you and now we play that? Everton next week. Now Arsenal play Everton next week. And then they draw that game and it slowly disintegrates. I'm not sure that's there with this Arsenal side. There's a path to that happening all of a sudden in a way that you can see. Not not because of the fact that they lost the game, but because they lose a game that they're supposed to win. Like, they're supposed to win the game where they're dominant, where their attacking players are the best attacking players, but actually they're less efficient than the opposition. Like, it's it, the, the trouble here is that we've seen the movie before, right? You're right, though. They have better players now than they have had. Do they have a better manager? It's hard to know. Like, he may well be an excellent manager, but um, games like yesterday, you're supposed to be able to think your way through those and come out with something. And maybe that's the next step in their evolution, is those big games when you are on top, getting the goals when it counts, whether it's just before halftime when De Gea is making a couple of brilliant saves from Martinelli. Maybe, you know, that first goal should count uh, at the VAR overturns, and it's a, it's a totally different thing. But I don't, I don't I, I'm think not, you can give the goal, can you? Well, I, I thought the second I saw the replay was going to be disallowed. Kenny Cunningham on commentary yesterday was insistent that the goal had to stand, that this was a little bit of physical contact. I think I saw Aidan O'Hara from the Independent make a good point that like one of the things that's been said this year is that more physicality is allowed. Yeah, it feels... Except, except if there's a goal and we go back and we slow it right down. Like, if that happens and there's no goal, nobody ever thinks about it again. It's a little coming together. Like, Ericsson's slightly off balance. Maybe he needs to be stronger. Maybe that's, I think, what Kenny's argument is. That yeah, there was a push, it's though. It's not a... That's the problem. But it's, it's a push because Ericsson has lost his balance because he's miscontrolled the ball. I, I thought the second I saw it, it's definitely going to be overruled. But I can understand Kenny's point of... And also, like, we could talk for VAR for hours, as everybody has all weekend. Like, Much is, it clear and obvi- is it a clear and obvious error when the referee is staring at it from five yards away and in real time doesn't feel it's a free kick? Yeah, no. I mean, in that instance, under that, those criteria, you have to give the goal. But once you've seen the foul, you can't say, I haven't seen the foul. Mm. That's the problem. Like In a game like all of these games where... The pace is the pace that these players are playing at because of their their uh, fitness and physicality and conditioning. You can probably give everything a foul one way or another. But, but you when you look at back, things. as you said, I, I think that's yesterday's a prime example of that. Of yeah, it probably is a foul, but it's not given because at that moment the pace of the game was unbelievably intense and it was scrappy and there was players pushing into each other, and knocking off each other constantly. So again, just because there's a goal scored at the end of it, you now have to go back. And give a free kick where, in real time, as a referee, you didn't believe there was one. Yeah, yeah. In in, the, in that instance, that should be the criteria. But look, uh, not to get waylaid by the VAR because everybody else has had this conversation already. You still think Arsenal are on an upward trajectory, which will see them in the Champions League qualifying places at the end of the season? I think so. Now, the more you look You're at it, Arsenal a team this is going to miss out. A team that uh, will feel they should be there if you even just a Manchester City, Liverpool. Tottenham, Chelsea, Arsenal, and now Manchester United are very much in that mix. Like, two of these teams are going to miss out and have had a disastrous season if you don't finish inside the top four. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, two weeks ago we would have said it wouldn't be a disaster for Man United to finish outside the top four. We would have expected it, but then they spent a quarter of a billion um, in the last few days. And it's like, oh, well, that's a, good, uh, it's a big injection of stuff. 
So uh, this is our opportunity to talk man, about Man United. How impressed were you? Not that impressed, it sounds like. I, I, I thought, again, there's a character there to Manchester United that, that doesn't panic. And you know, at their best under Solskjaer, they were a brilliant counter-attacking team. And that's what they did yesterday. Like They sucked Arsenal in. They were absorbing the pressure, albeit on the ropes a little bit in the second half. And struck, and they have that quality in midfield with Ericsson and Fernandez that they can pick out a pass at the right time. Like Marcus Rashford, it's a shame that he went off uh, holding his hamstring. Finally looks like there's a bit of confidence coming back. Remember, just one goal. That Liverpool goal is only goal since January uh, coming into this match. But he took the first one in particular really well. Uh, he didn't really have any doubts. I know it was a deflection and all that. He didn't have any doubts when he went through this time that he was actually going to score. The deflection is very important, I think, in a way that like that might be what he needed. It, Quite possible. You know, like it's possible. Like great striker score. I did have a doubt. I actually did have a doubt. I think I thought that like, ooh, this could be horrific here. But then because it goes in off the deflection, his his life changes. If if he's back to what he was and, and fulfills his potential, I I think that was a big sliding doors moment for him yesterday. Yeah, I I, I don't think United are are the finished article yet now. But there's a you look at the two fullbacks, they look at his step up massively on where they were last season. Uh the low looks you know, full of confidence. He's playing in a, you know, people talk about Zinchenko playing maybe in a Cancelo type, plays left back but pops up in the middle of midfield. Like Dallow was everywhere yesterday. He's popping up uh, on the edge of the D, like a transformative sort of fullback. Uh, Malassia was getting first 10 minutes. Saka had a couple of goals at him and looked at the beating of him but stuck at it and was solid. Again, defensively, I know even talking to Kenny again, he still has question marks about Martinez but they didn't really do a huge amount wrong yesterday. And with Casemiro to come in, I thought it was interesting. Martinez kicked uh, all around him, but that they they got Gabriel Jesus early and often. Like, it, mm. I, I mean, was it an accident that for four times in the first twenty minutes, Jesus is on the ground, haven't been kicked? I'm not sure, but there's like a flintiness to that that Harry Maguire wasn't doing that. No, and Harry Maguire comes on, and <laughs> well, well, the first thing he does is just clatter at Manchester City, for like, right, an Arsenal player, and get uh, get booked. Uh, and maybe, like, maybe what Martinez did was the right thing to do because Gabriel Jesus was everywhere except as a number nine for that game. Like, maybe mentally he thought, I don't want to be around this guy. I'm going to get injured if I stick near this guy for too long. Uh, but like, yeah, I think United compared to where they were for the first couple of weeks of the season, it's obviously a world apart. Anthony comes in, gets his goal, uh, looks to have a little bit of an edge about him. Like there was a few little swipes at the Arsenal players, uh, throwing the boot in a little bit of chatting to some of the Arsenal players. Why is Casemiro not playing? Is it just fitness? Is that is? Look, there's an awful lot of games coming. It's hard to believe it's fitness because you know he would have been starting uh, for Real Madrid at the start of the season. Eric ten Hag obviously said, you know, he's learning to play my style. Yeah, uh, and Scott McTominay is playing so well. Yeah, I mean, but that's not incorrect either. Like he is actually playing well. No, and maybe he's slowly building him up, knowing that they have an insane run of fixtures coming up and doesn't want to risk him in any way. It will be interesting, a Casemiro, Christian Eriksen, Bruno Fernandes midfield. Uh, and is that a midfield that can be got at pace-wise and intensity-wise, or actually are they going to have so much control of the ball that actually other teams won't be able to get near them in midfield? And maybe maybe uh, Ten Hag is going to have multiple ways of playing in those games where they're not going to have control of the ball. Uh, you can play that, and it's a lot of through balls through, and the front three need to run and run and run, and they've got energy to do that now mm. because, um, <clears throat> pardon me, Ronaldo's not in the team. Uh, Fergus Kiel says, Arsenal are still top of the table in red. Come on, Ger. Look, you know, the it's early days. Six, game, six games in, the table is not the table. Uh, as it's going to be at the end of the season. 
You're not the only one, Jerry wishes Owen was here, says MJW. <laughs> I don't know if, whose shots that's far that particular. Uh, maybe Arteta should be in the red. Why he changed the team at that moment, I'll never know, says Philip Nolan. Um, so, may, look, maybe this is all part of Arteta's learning curve and he needs more time as a number one to be able to come through these things. So, you're, you're predicting they're going to finish top four still? Uh, from what we've seen so far this season, I think from the quality that they have... I, I think Arsenal have given themselves a great chance of finishing top four. All right. Uh, Mikey Brown, how is VAR, VAR not in the red? You wanted VAR in the red. I took it out. Basically, yeah. The, it was going to come up throughout the morning anyway. Yeah, so. it's, uh, it, we have many opportunities for us. All right. So, um, Arsenal should have been in the orange, says Nathan. I say they should have been in the red. You can have your own say in our comments box. 087-9180-180 is WhatsApp number. What's next? Uh, Leicester. I don't need to come any questions uh, that Leicester should be in the red. Uh, another defeat yesterday, beaten 5-2 by Brighton. Brighton unlucky not to be in the green. Um, bottom of the table, one point from six games. And a general sense with Brendan Rodgers that he's, he's given up. He's just waiting for the inevitable payoff that will come. It's a real shame because what Leicester have done over the last few years under Rodgers has been outstanding. Yeah, they screwed up. They didn't get that Champions League spot twice. Twice when it was there for the taking. And it's falling apart as a club. Like from, you know, they sustained, okay, not quite winning the title again, uh, but sustained being a regular top half of the table team. And there's no reason why they can't get back there. But there was such an opportunity for them over the last 18 years to really make themselves a force where they're a top six team every single year. Thought they were unbelievably unlucky last season with the amount of injuries that they picked up throughout the season. Totally derailed them. And this summer, they haven't done the business. They, you know, had become something of a selling club, even if they've managed to keep hold of, you know, James Madison and Jamie Vardy and Harvey Barnes. You know, the Wesley Fofana situation just dragged on for for far too long. Yeah, they got full value in the end, but did it give them enough time to get replacements in? Did it give them a chance to spend their eighty million quid? I don't know. And like, it feels the most inevitable thing. We are just waiting for the message to come through this afternoon that Brendan Rodgers is gone. You think it'll be that they won't give us all the drama that we feel we deserve in, in football? Give them a week. I mean, it's a full week is the problem, right? Uh, Leicester, Aston Villa, next Saturday afternoon at three o'clock. Brendan Rodgers versus Stephen Gerrard. It's, it's, well, what, 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 we don't deserve this. What about we need this it? scenario, all right, where Brendan Rodgers is gone this week? Then Leicester going beat Aston Villa. Stephen Gerrard is fired next week, and Brendan Rodgers is the new Aston Villa manager. Equally, a, a scenario that uh, that could play out. Would you, what, as a Villa, as a Villa fan, would you be comfortable with Brendan Rodgers being the next Aston Villa manager? I think Brendan Rodgers is an excellent football manager. Yeah, like people dislike Brendan Rodgers for whatever reason. I think was that what Mark Arnold said for whatever reason. Never really had much time for him for whatever reason. Uh, um, in the parlance of football, he's chocolate, and that mm-hmm. he he would eat himself. But like, you know. Uh, don't, you don't. Oh, there's a huge amount of revisionism when it comes to Brendan Rodgers' achievements of everywhere he's been and you know at Liverpool, what he should have done differently that day against Chelsea and the naivety and all of that. Like he got Liverpool playing incredible football, uh, some of the best football they've played, uh, certainly in the intervening years before Jurgen Klopp came along. Obviously, Celtic supporters look at him very differently, despite all the success that they brought there, because he jumped ship. Uh, and again at Leicester like, if you take away the title winning season and maybe the freakish aspect of that like, it's done more than you know, done more than anybody has done get some fifth in the league twice even last season where it was a struggle they end up finishing eighth which for a club of Leicester is exceptional and also if you're a club like Aston Villa 
Like he has a track record of making really good signings. Of I do wonder how much credit you need to give him for that, or the architecture that comes with him. And, and it Are seems you? like Leicester have been very good at signing before and after. Um, well, obviously, we haven't seen the after yet. Probably likes Coutinho, Firmino at, at Liverpool as well. Um, but he's also developed young players. Like he has a track record at, at Leicester of developing young players, even at Liverpool with Raheem Sterling. So you know, James Justin. Harvey Elliott, or Harvey Barnes, James Madison, all of these guys have got a lot better. Keenan Jewsbury Hall over the last 18 months under Brendan Rodgers. And it's, it's falling apart, and he seems quite happy almost for it to fall apart at this stage. But I still think while him getting the top six job is gone for now, you know, those middle-ranking teams like Village Air will, will snap him up. Well, I mean, you, you say that like it's supposed to be an insult, but Villa need to know exactly where they are in the world at the moment. And uh, they're not in the world where you can take some manager who has not got very much experience and put him into the Premier League and let him learn on the job. However, they have just had their best result of the season by slowing down the Manchester City juggernaut under intense pressure and coming from behind to do it and nearly snatching a winner. So, uh, like... I don't know if um, Stephen Gerrard has won. He certainly has not won the Villa fans back just yet. But, like, beat Leicester next week and all of a sudden the mood music, the pressure valve is released and he's certainly he's going to be the manager through the next transfer window. If they... Like, that's that's what these games mean. That's what... If they'd been beaten like Nottingham Forest had been by Manchester City and there'd been another Haaland hat-trick, I think, like, he would have been in the red. They would have been in so much trouble... Uh, and now they have a relatively easy game, you would say, next week, if Brendan Rodgers is still the manager. So, I don't know, it's very interesting. Well, they were, they were really unlucky at the weekend, like, the again, the decision uh, around the disallowed goal and the raising of the flag early goes against everything we've seen from officials over the last 18 months. Yeah, as long as you don't get beaten 6-7-0 by Manchester City, you're, you know, you're probably getting fired off the back of that. Uh, but it is, as you say now, an expectation going into the Leicester game because they are in absolute crisis that these are the sort of games Villa need to win and to build a bit of momentum. <sighs> Gerard can turn it around, managers turn it around all the time. Just listening to the commentary around Villa uh, on this show and elsewhere over the last couple of weeks, it does feel that there's just a general lack of trust of Gerard that it, it won't take much for Villa to go back into crisis mode again. No. Uh, that's one side. The other side of it is that actually he's started to... So Douglas Louise hadn't been in the team for whatever reason. I don't know if they, if they had, like... If that was one of those, he wants to leave. Well, you can't pick him if he wants to leave. We might sell him. We might sell him. Don't put him. But he started... Um, he obviously had been their only goal-scoring threat from corners for a couple of weeks there. But he started the game with Kamara and Ramsey and McGinn and... I don't know, it seems to have worked. Uh, Leon Bailey, who obviously didn't play any football last season after his big money arrival, he was given out about not being in the team, but has started to score goals, scored in the Cup, scored at the weekend. You're like, well, maybe there is the bones of a good team there. And maybe those players can go on a run. And the team is completely settled now because of the injuries that they've had. So, I don't know. Does a result like that against Man City give everybody a bit of confidence and everybody's bouncing a train and going, actually, you know what, we just stopped the greatest team that might ever exist. It'd want to give you a bit of confidence. It would. I mean, Haaland and De Bruyne, Foden and Silva started that game. Mm. Like, that's a good team. It's <laughs> a good team, you know? And they, they held them. So, that the next week is going to be interesting. You can't see a way out for Brendan Rodgers at Leicester unless Leicester decides, well, you got you got us into this mess, yeah, get us out of it. it up. Yeah, it doesn't, much like the Scott Parker scenario where he was got rid of just because of his general negativity, 
that for Leicester, like if Rodgers doesn't want to be there, he always seems like a very naturally uh, enthusiastic and positive person. Uh, he looks quite broken right now. So maybe the best thing for Leicester. Like the last time they were bottom of the league and it was all doom and gloom. They suddenly turned it all around and within 80 months were champions. So who knows? Bring yeah. back Nigel Pearson. They did have a very good squad of players. Uh, I think they've still got a pretty good squad of players there at the moment. and They all kind of seem like they all want out. Well, that is that is the problem. Almost every single one of them and I, has been linked I with somebody say, else. I actually do think that, that we, I think we talked about this at the time, that like the constant Rodgers being linked with and never quite denying the Man United links and whoever else was coming up links. Like, if you're Tielemans or Vardy or any of the rest of those players and you're looking at that going... Okay, so this is a stepping stone. That's we're, we're all we're all agreed. We're to do our very best while it's here, but it's a stepping stone, right? Well, if like, you look at that team from yesterday, like Justin, Indeedy, Barnes, Tielemans, Madison, all of them linked with moves during the summer, and again, all of them knowing that if you know if Antonio Conte implodes at Christmas, that Brendan Rodgers will be gone like that. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, so it's uh, it's uh, the wages of sin. Seven fifty-five. Let's go to Amber. Amber. We've decided to put the Republic of Ireland's women's national team in amber. Obviously, it's an easy green after the success of Thursday night. But tomorrow night has taken on all sorts of importance now against Slovakia uh, because there's a real opportunity for Ireland to be one of the seeded sides for the playoff draw. That's it. Play my music, Chair. I'm going to explain how the playoffs work. I think everyone has a basic understanding of the initial, uh, initial playoff system right now. So nine teams qualify for the playoffs. Uh, the bottom six teams, according to their points, uh, will play off in the first round. The top three get a bye from the first round and go straight through to the second round. Uh, so on Thursday night after the game, I, I sort of got through it and felt it wasn't that unlikely. I know Vera Powell at the time felt, ooh, a lot of things need to happen, but all of them weren't beyond the realms of possibility. In fact, some of them were quite obvious. So for Ireland to finish in the top three, the following needed to happen. They needed Norway to beat Belgium. Norway beat Belgium by a goal to nil. They needed England to beat Austria. England beat Austria by two goals to nil. They needed Serbia to drop points in one of their last two games against either Portugal or Israel. Portugal beat Serbia, which means... It is now in Ireland's own hands. If they can win in Slovakia tomorrow evening, 5 o'clock kickoff, Ireland will be one of the three seeded teams. They'll be the third seeded team. So Switzerland and either Iceland or the Netherlands are going to be the top two seeded teams. Belgium are currently third, but they are finished. So Ireland are on 14 points, Belgium are on 16 points, a win for Ireland, and they will be one of the seeded teams, which means they get a bye, and it also means they definitely avoid Switzerland, Netherlands, Iceland, the toughest possible teams in that draw for the playoffs. Now, being the third seeded team does increase the possibility that you're in that pretty nightmarish scenario where you can win your final playoff and still not qualify. What? So... There'll be three playoff winners. At the end of all this, there'll be three European playoff winners. Only the top two qualify for the World Cup. Automatically. Automatically. The third team will go to a repercharge, you could call it, in New Zealand next February, where there'll be ten teams from around the world, an inter-confederations playoff. Ten teams, three more places for the World Cup, divided into three sections. But we would definitely be the top-ranked team in that by a mile, right? Definitely one of the strong favourites. Again, there's so much still to go in different parts of the world, it's kind of hard to figure out how that would work out and what teams you would end up being drawn against. Yeah. Uh, So 
the ideal scenario for Ireland is obviously they win their playoff uh, and then there's an upset somewhere else. Uh, the way they're going to do it, and it doesn't seem to make a huge amount of sense, is they'll take your points from the group stage and then add the result from the final. And I'm assuming that means if one of them was a draw and it went to penalties, that that would actually count as one point rather than a three-point win. So by winning directly, you could possibly get through. So just to play that out, are you actually better being a strong team and having the two games? So from your semi-final, or do they only take the points from the final? Only from the final. Okay, Again, okay, it, fair enough. It, it, it doesn't... It, I, I definitely think seeding is the way to go so that you avoid... So Netherlands and Iceland play tomorrow as well, and uh, the Dutch need to win that. Now, they'd be strong favourites uh, to win that. But I think you want to avoid Iceland, Netherlands, Switzerland. Uh, you know, there's a possibility you get Bosnia, who'd be seen as one of the uh, weaker runner-up and if Ireland are seeded. So it just makes it more straightforward. But there is, there is a possibility you know, Ireland could have, if they weren't to win tomorrow night, could have four more games to qualify and all four tough games. So that's the only reason they're in the amber. I think after Thursday night, everyone's feeling confident. But Slovakia have been a pain in the ass for everybody in this group so far. They obviously drew in Dublin. Uh, they took points off Finland as well. And Ireland need to get themselves back up after the celebrations. It was such a high on Thursday night that, you know, back down to earth, big job to do. And we life could be a whole lot easier. Injured. Uh, Jamie Finn suspended. Yeah, so they're, they're not as strong as they were in advance of the game last week, but um, we'll have more on that in a little while. We have uh, Ashley O'Reilly, our reporter, is on the trip with them and reporting back over the next uh, 24, 48 hours. Hopefully it's a historic victory and we catapult ourselves forward straight into that playoff and we get a reasonable draw and away we go. So even if we... Is there, we have to win the playoff. Otherwise, there's no... Once you oh, you've got to win from... Once tomorrow night is done, so Ireland are in a playoff regardless, even if Slovakia were to beat them tomorrow night. But from there on in, you've got to win every game or you're gone. Okay. All right, so that's why they're in the amber. We hope that they'll be in the green by this time next week. So who are in the green, Nathan? I think we start with Celtic in the green. Uh, Old Firm win by four goals to nil. Uh, Celtic's season so far, played six games, won all six games, scored 25 goals, conceded one goal. And they've just beaten Rangers by four goals. If ever there was a week that Celtic should be in the green, it's this week. And Real Madrid are coming to town tomorrow. Could be the greatest week of all time. Quite possibly. Uh, I know Celtic fans are absolutely loving what they're seeing from Celtic right now. Uh, Not just the form that they're showing, the manner of their performances, the quality of their performances, the style of football where they're totally dominating teams, where it's real slick passing possession football, scoring top quality goals. And a sense that actually going into Europe and being in the Champions League group stage for the first time since 2017, that maybe they can make an impression. It's the one little question mark that's hanging over Ange Postacoglu is last season was a huge disappointment. You know, they get well beaten by Bode Glimt in the Conference League after dropping out of the Europa League. That greatness at Celtic, even still, is achieved by making an impression in Europe. Nobody's expecting them even to go back, I think, to the days really of, of what Martin O'Neill was to do, such as the disparity in European football but that they can go out against quality teams and show their best stuff. So Real Madrid tomorrow night is as you know, tough a test as you can get the defending champions. Uh, they've got Leipzig and Shakhtar Donetsk in the group as well. Uh, they're in a position already where maybe while the games are coming thick and fast that you know, they, they're pretty much guaranteed to win the vast majority of their games in the Scottish Premiership, that they can be fresh and rested. And, yeah, whatever... Uh, Whatever they might say about Brendan Rodgers, they look at Ange Postecoglou in a very, very different way. Yeah, they do. They do. I mean, um, did all the did all the GA legends over there at the weekend? Yeah, what was David the story Clifford about? was there. Yeah, 
Kevin Cassidy. Kevin Cassidy. They were in the same group and they were all on the pitch. I saw Marco Shea. Meeting. Oh, was he in the same group? Mm. All right. Um, I wonder what the crack was, what the what the link was. Um, Kevin Cassidy was saying he was pretty certain that uh, Clifford could play up front for us and by us he was meaning Celtic. I do wonder if there's like a, you know... A Shock mar- transfer. A, well, a marketing, a smart marketing person who like gets him, gets him to a club for a week of a trial in the style of Anthony Towell. Remember that? Mm. That was... Uh, yeah. Went to Manchester United, didn't he? He did, yeah. Scored in a reserve game. Right. Um, he definitely would be... Uh, oh, there's a couple of the carry lads there as well. Yeah, so they absolutely uh, ripped Rangers to pieces. They said the quality of the goals. Uh, the fourth goal, like Rangers were just broken. The keeper just passes it straight out to the Celtic uh, attacker. He just slots it in. Uh, and again, it's what Celtic have to be now, picking up players from different parts of the world. Uh, they brought Aaron Moy back from China. You know, he was at Brighton. He was a okay Premier League player and looks top quality now for Celtic. Matt O'Reilly was brilliant at the weekend. And Kyogo, Abada, Jota are all scoring a load of goals. So uh, it's there's a lot to like about Celtic and you hope that tomorrow night against Real Madrid they can do themselves justice. Yeah. I mean, I presume every Premier League team is looking at Ange going... Um, how do we? What, what do we need to do to get him? Or how much more does he have to do before uh, the rest of the Premier League teams are like, okay, we we need to get this guy? Well, I think it's the manner of the football as well. Like we're seeing, like Brighton, as I say, could easily have been in the green this week. Teams want attacking possession football. It's what supporters want to see. They don't want to see their team sitting back, regardless of where they are on the table now. They want to see they're having a go and they're going to be entertained. And if the odd time you get it beaten because of that, fine. But they don't want the 1 0, we're sitting five back. And I think Ange Postacoglu will be really attractive to a huge amount of Premier League clubs because of that. He gets his teams playing and he's shown he can mix and match players. They don't have too many superstars at Celtic, really, at the moment. But he's getting them to this level, so it's not, it's, I, I can't see him uh, pulling a Brendan Rodgers in jumping ship mid-season, but who knows how this Premier League season develops. Maybe Brendan Rodgers gets fired and Leicester say, you know what, we've got, we've got good connections up in Celtic. Let's go again. Yeah. All right. Uh, the headline. <laughs> there you go. Four minutes past eight. Who else is in the green? Uh, final one in the green. Got to be Kieran McGeehan. Uh, unbelievable on Friday night. Uh, Diamond League winner. Uh, in Brussels and broke Sonia Sullivan's 1500 metre record which has stood since all the way back in 1995. Uh, Kieran had never broken four minutes before and she finished in three minutes 56 seconds 0.63 so took over two seconds off Sonia Sullivan's Irish record and this has been coming. Uh, Kieran McGeehan Interesting listen to her over the weekend. She's obviously performed exceptionally at the Commonwealth Games and at the European Championships having chosen to skip the World Championships in Oregon, taking silver medals behind Laura Muir. And they weren't particularly fast races, but she said she knew she knew this sort of sub-four-minute time was in her, and she was just praying to God that she would get a fast 1,500 metres so she could show it. She wasn't even in the race towards the end of last week. Again, because her times this year hadn't been exceptional, her performances have been brilliant, but those races where she performed have been some of the slower races, even though there were big championship races, and she managed to get a place in uh, late on and beats Laura Muir, who she trains with all the time. And you look at the results across the European Championship, across this Diamond League, she is competing and beating people who are World Championship medalists, who are top three, top four in the world on a consistent basis. And you know, she has got to be looking towards another World Championship next year in Budapest with a real possibility of being in the mix for a medal 
It's going to be an action again this week. The Diamond League final is on. Yeah. Uh, on Thursday night. So that's on um, in Zurich. So, yeah. It's, I think Kieran McGeehan, as one of the most, uh, understandably, one of the most popular Irish sports people, has been building towards this throughout her entire career. She's 30 now. And, you know, people might have felt, well, actually, maybe those days of contending for medals or running these sort of times weren't going to happen. But, if anything, she's just getting better and better. Yeah, as an 18-year-old, she won a silver medal in the World Junior Championships in uh, in 2010. And so that's like she was a world-quality athlete at 18. And here she is finally fulfilling her potential after, um, you know, injury and all sorts of things had uh, prevented her from getting to that point. So uh, really, to beat your training partner who's beaten you twice mm. for medals... Um, at the end of the season I don't know if you've seen the same commentary I have but the the British commentators are like oh our girl well she must be very tired at the end of the season and then you look at the time like no she just couldn't run as fast no well I think you saw the reaction from uh, the other thing was I was kind of surprised I didn't try and claim her that was the other thing that was about to happen that's coming that'll be next year uh, when she gets that world championship medal I think think I think, uh, yeah. But she's she's always been one for the big day. Like her previous record in fifteen hundred was in a world championship. So uh, I think we all know when we look at Kira McGee, we can trust that she is going to perform on the big stage. And it'd be interesting. I, I'm sure she doesn't have any regrets about skipping the world championship because you know maybe skipping that and focusing a little bit later in the summer has allowed her to perform at the Commonwealths and at the Europeans and get this new record because of that. But looking ahead to the next World Championship, like she has got to be thinking there is a definite medal chance. Yeah, and also like this is there's a very limited window for athletes to um, to make money in these big competitions. Mm. So fingers crossed she can, uh, you know. That, and I think that would also justify everything as well because we forget that these athletes represent Ireland on an absolute shoestring in terms of the revenue that we give them as a country to run in our colours. So um, well, I thought the conversation with Eamon Coughlin last week was fascinating and. You know, Kira McGeehan left Ireland. Uh, she went over to Manchester. You know, she's spoken about how difficult a decision that was. But she's training with the best, so she's training with Laura Muir. So she knows exactly every single day what she's got to do to get herself into contention, and it's worked. And it's worked in her favour. And it's been brilliant to see, and it'll be hopefully brilliant to see on Thursday night as well. All right. Um, some comments coming in. Owen Hurley says, "Put Klopp in the red. Liverpool on cruise control in the second half. And he brings on Milner. Why?" Was he going to unlock Everton's defence? Like, I'd get it if we went 1-0 up, but come on, Jesus. Um, uh, what did you make of the... Uh, we're going to talk about this in a few minutes with Harriet Pryor. What did you make of Liverpool's performance? Again, th- that line of there's something just missing. I, I think midfield uh, isn't there. The energy that has been a hallmark of this team over the last four or five years isn't there in midfield and I think that is destabilising everything. I keep going back to the goal that Palace scored against them and Eze getting around Fabinho in midfield. That tackle is made by a Liverpool player every time for the last three or four years. Like Henderson gets in and he wins that ball and then actually Liverpool are on the attack. Suddenly probably Trent's release or Salah's release because it's all a little bit uncertain but he loses it and the defence are just exposed and again... Everton had several chances on the counter-attack and yeah, Van Dijk looks a little bit off it. Trent, defensively, there's question marks. But they haven't had to defend like this at any stage since they got to the club because the midfield isn't protecting them. Like, Liverpool's midfield was everything. They're not the stars. They were the engine. Yeah. But it was an engine that overpowered everything. Is there a possibility that they're the ones struggling to finish fourth? Uh, If it continues to go like this, we've obviously seen... uh, 
you know, a couple of years ago where it disintegrated pretty quickly. Uh, now, they've had players coming back and you know, they did win their previous game 9-0. Um, and they hit the woodwork, what, three, four times? Well, the previous the game weekend. was the, the late winner against Newcastle. Oh, sorry, Newcastle. Yeah. Um, which was like a 97-minute winner. You know, which it's great and everything. It's great that that's happening, but you can't bank on that all the time. And No, you can't. And there is the possibility that the other teams have improved massively and Liverpool have fallen back. They need to find something in midfield. But the fact that Henderson's going to be out for, it seems, at least till the international break would leave you very concerned. They're picking up a lot of injuries. I, th- I think the reason Milner came on, we were down at Electric Picnic, so I only saw the highlights afterwards. I thought it was the Trent had gone off injured as well, okay. uh, just before the hour mark. But again, like you're relying on James Milner. Patrick Campbell is in an, on my camp here. He says, bit late to the party here, lads, but Arsenal are royally fecked in October when they play the top half of the table teams and three Europa League games midweek. Let's wait and see. Yeah, but everybody see. is that. Like, He's yeah. marrying them. I'm like, no, okay, one weekend, fine, let's, let's have the crack. I actually think that brings in, even for Liverpool, for Manchester City, that's the jeopardy that brings the next them back month... To the pack. Well, for everybody. like Everybody has ten games yeah. in the next month. Yeah, they, all have, they all have giant bloated squads, whereas the... the I don't know if like, City obviously have the quality. Do they have a giant bloated squad? They always have three or four academy kids. Like, they're the best academy kids, so... They be, are. They're all just fine. Where, like, the opposition are trying to buy for it. Well, Chelsea might be. I don't know. I don't know what's going on at Chelsea. They are, there's a case study there, which we'll do later on in the week. It's 11 minutes past 8. OTBAM brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish today. That is this week's Gillette Labs performance rankings. OTBAM's performance rankings with Gillette. All right, it's 15 minutes past eight. It's time for us to uh, turn our attention to the situation at Manchester United, where, you know, uh, one swallow doesn't make a summer, but three of them in a row certainly makes people think, oh, we can feel a bit of sun on our backs. I'm delighted to say Samuel Luckhurst is with us again. Sam, good morning to you. How are you doing? Good morning. Very well, thank you. Thanks the, for having me on, as always. The, uh, the mood music has definitely changed. Um, what about the quality of performances? We, we can get into the, the, uh, the overarching struggles that the club have had and, and whether or not a tide has been turned. Uh, have the performances still got room to to grow as well? So is this the beginning of the process, I suppose I'm asking? Undeniably, Ten Hag's been quite consistent about that and he said it again yesterday that there's room for improvement individually and collectively. Uh, I think United are still not playing the way he would prefer them to play. Their preferred tactic still seems to be uh, the counter-attack you saw with pretty much all the goals against Arsenal yesterday, which is a bit of a the, the Solskjaer about it, certainly pre-autumn of, of last year when, when it was effective. And Ten Hag doesn't want them to play that way. It wants to be more progressive, possession-based. They're still yet to master that. But after the two debacles against Brentford and Brighton, it was all about getting points on the board. And fair play to him and, and the players and what he's done since then. They've, they've taken 12 out of 12. So uh, now the transfer window's closed and he's integrating new signings into the team and they have stabilised uh, for, for a couple of weeks there now. He'll probably try and get his try and impl- implement his style more now uh, that the competitive games have, have started and the window is closed, crucially. Being a counter-attacking team may not be exactly what Eric Ten Hag wants his side to be, but it does feel like maybe it's exactly what they need right now when we talk about the mood music around the club. Like, think back to that first day against Brighton. Second, a couple of misplaced passes started. The crowd were getting on their back. Whereas yesterday, even when Arsenal were in the ascendancy, you felt that United supporters weren't panicking because there was that belief, actually, we can get them. We All we need is the ball to fall to Eriksen or Fernandez at the right time and we can get them on the counter-attack. That there's an excitement to that style of play that maybe suits United where they are right now. Maybe it doesn't bring them a title long term, but for the progression over the next six months, being that exciting counter-attacking team is, is just what they need. 
Yeah, I completely agree. And one of the key aspects of that is the, the sign of Christian Eriksen and that they've got a player from deep who can break the lines with his passing. Previously, it was only Fernandez, And of course, Fernandez plays high up the pitch, close to the striker. He was very good as well yesterday. Uh, both those players were involved in, in all three goals. But Eriksen is, is effectively playing this Frankie Dion role without United signing Frankie Dion, and they, they didn't have to pay a fee for him. So, so far, that, that deal is working out very well. The more you watch Eriksen, the more you understand why the previous three uh, permanent United managers actually called him up and tried to sign him. So, as I said earlier, although Ten Hag wants them to play a more progressive, controlling uh, form of football, I think they only had, they had some like. 39% of the ball yesterday against Arsenal. And although the crowds, uh, as you say, were, were extremely supportive and the mood is com- completely different from a couple of weeks ago um, when, when they had the protests before the Liverpool game and that those those chants about the Glazers are continuing. There were a few occasions yesterday where the, the crowd was, was getting audibly exasperated with, with Rashford for not being at full throttle uh, while he was playing up front. But one of the things that really impressed about Ten Hag is how proactive a manager he is in that he brought Ronaldo on quite early yesterday, having brought Casemiro on quite early in the second half against Leicester. And both those substitutions had had a big impact. And Rashford, I don't think it's a coincidence that his three goals this season have come when he has moved to the left wing and he can run into areas where the space is vacated. Uh, in the case yesterday by Ronaldo, where he drops off the Rashford can play on the shoulder of the last defender. And that high line from Arsenal just didn't work yesterday. And United were able to score a couple of goals that way. It's interesting that um, the Rashford form has this kind of knock-on impact on everything else because all of a sudden you don't have to play anybody else in any of the forward positions. If he's playing well... He's an option for you across the line. And then as a result of that, there's competition. So uh, Jadon Sancho is not going to play 90 minutes if he's not playing well in the game. However, uh, his standard will rise because of the competition that he feels, because if he's not playing well, he's going to be substituted. So it's kind of this uh, virtuous circle that, that but it only works if Rashford's scoring goals. So we were having this conversation a little bit earlier on about like sliding doors moments. The, the, uh, he's clean through, the deflection happens and it takes the ball past the goalkeeper ball nestles in the bottom of the net if he misses that opportunity the exasperation of the crowd maybe rings in his ears a bit more but all of a sudden you know those one two chances that he scored in the last couple of weeks that could be transformative to his career it certainly could and when you would look at the attack now with with Anthony in there you would struggle to say that Rushford is, is a certain starter because although he is starting through the middle that the feeling among United fans certainly those of us who watch them quite regularly, is that it, there's no real debate over where his best position is. It is on the left-hand side. He's played his best football for United there. He's played most of his football for United there. Uh, Gareth Southgate seems to feel, certainly when Rashford was in the England squad, that that's where he can maximise him the best. Now, Ten Hag is obviously playing through the middle for now, but it, there were some you know, some uh, supporters who were surprised yesterday that Rashford still started, given that Ronaldo looked a bit sharper on the ball when he came on against Leicester. You can't just discount Ronaldo either because of the impact he had when, when he came on and, and Rashford was obviously able to move to the left. But despite all that chatter about Paris Saint-Germain, um, he, he does seem refreshed playing under Ten Hag, uh, a coach who obviously... Has, has a good track record of improving not just uh, any players that he inherits on an individual basis, but the, the attackers he inherits. 
So although there's pressure on Rashford in that you would possibly look at that attack and think when everyone's fit, it's going to be Anthony, uh, Martial, given how uh, propitious his pre-season was, and Sancho. Um, he's he's got three goals so far, and he's he's certainly got a hell of a lot of incentives to sustain this form in the run up to the selection for the World Cup. England have got one more squad to get get together this month. So far, you'd probably say that Rashford will get back in um, on the strength of his start to the season. Yeah, talk to us a little bit about the improvement in in the performance of players who had previously not been playing particularly well. So McTominay had become a bit of a punchline. It's interesting to see him holding off Casemiro for now from the team, but actually playing very well. We've obviously seen the the right-back suddenly not be a problem, but maybe actually something where we are talking about somebody who could have a long-term future in the team. Um, That's two. We've talked about Rashford. Uh, What's happening there with those players that is making them um, good, or at least competent? Well, McTominay always seems to get a, a bounce from a new manager. Uh, it took a while under Solskjaer, but when he did finally start, he pretty much stayed in the team. And at the start of Solskjaer's first full season, he was, he was probably just as key to United as, as Rashford was. Rashford was getting most of the goals in those first few months, but McTominay was was the glue in that midfield. And when he did get injured, they, they missed him. Uh, Rangnick took a shine to him. And now Ten Hag keeps on playing him ahead of Casemiro. I mean, that, that was a bit of a shock yesterday that Casemiro, who had been at the club for a fortnight, was was still on the bench, whereas Anthony, who was a, officially a nice player for a matter of days, was was thrown straight into the team. But McTominay, I think he's got that. He's got the right mentality. Uh, he understands the, the the pace of the Premier League, the, the aggressive nature of it, and he is the kind of midfielder who you could always see. Uh, relishing those those games against Arsenal, he's he certainly relished playing against them in the past. Whether that informed Ten Hag's thinking, it'd be interesting to know. But you, you can rely on McTominay to be quite disciplined, to win the ball, um, to you know make keep up with the tempo really, and and that's going to be interesting when Casemiro does get in the team. How how he fares in a very intense game from from start to finish potentially. With with Dallo again, he, he gained the trust of, of Rangnick quite quickly. He he did okay under Rangnick. I wouldn't say he was particularly you know, one of the. There were a handful of players that enjoyed their time playing under him and, and performed, but compared with Aaron Misaka, who was a player Oli Gunnar was trying to replace last year with Kieran Trippier, uh, it's it's like night and day. And, and Dallo does look an even more confident player under Ten Hag. That back four is unrecognisable now from the back four. Solskjaer settled on where it was a, an Anglo-Scandi back four, if you like, where you had Wan-Bissaka, Maguire, Lindelof and Shaw. It now consists of um, a, a completely overseas uh, back line there. Uh, Maguire obviously came on yesterday and, and got booked pretty much straight away. So unless there's an injury to any of those uh, four starting defenders at the moment, it's difficult to see... Maguire, Wambasaka, or, or Luke Shaw getting in, which again is interesting uh, given the knock-on effect it have on England. So although it's still early days with Ten Hag, uh, it was quite apparent during pre-season that he does have this propensity for improving individuals and individuals do gain his trust and do buy into his methods very quickly. Just on Casemiro, it is still very early days, but obviously his signing came at the end of a long, arduous summer of trying to get Frankie de Jong, trying to get Adrian Rabiot. Like, the fact that he doesn't start a big game like that yesterday, would there be any sense that 
like he, he's not Ten Hag's man, that in the biggest games, maybe Ten Hag will worry about having a midfield of Casemiro, Fernandez, and Eriksen and their mobility against like an Arsenal, say those three behind Jesus, and even Jesus who dropped deep, you know, the constant rotations that maybe actually there'll always be a place for a McTominay or a Fred. It's an interesting point, and I suppose longer it carries on with Casemiro not, not starting a league game. I think he will start against Real Sociedad, but you, you, they weren't signing him to start in Europa League group games necessarily. It was mainly the, the bread and butter of the Premier League. And, of course, De Jong was, was the one that, that Ten Hag really wanted, and people at United have held their hands up. They said there was never any chance they were going to sign De Jong and Casemiro. Effectively, the fee they agreed with Barcelona for Frankie De Jong was eventually invested on Casemiro. They would certainly have been open to signing Adrian Rabio and one of uh, Frankie De Jong and Casemiro. Casemiro and Frankie De Jong, I don't need to go on uh, to both of you about how markedly different those two midfielders are. But you clearly saw after the Brentford debacle and after uh, the statement that came out from Sir Jim Ratcliffe's spokesperson that there was a complete shift in the uh, spending from Manchester United in the summer. They went from scrunching around in uh, the the bargain basket looking for Marco Arnautovic and and, and Adrian Rabiot to invest in something like £150, £160 million in Casemiro and Anthony. Anthony was very much a priority signing, was very much a signing that Ten Hag wanted. With Casemiro, there were discussions for a lot longer than than appeared to be the case. I mean, that 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 interest emerged quite late in the day and it seemed to be done quite quickly thereafter. But United did touch base earlier in the window. It, it's interesting that he was clearly seen as, as a backup target to De Jong in the, as I said earlier, they are very, very different players. Casemiro is definitely what United need more than, than De Jong in that they just did not have a defensive midfielder in their squad before they signed him. And a defensive midfielder is non-negotiable in the Premier League. You look at every elite club or every very well-run club in the Premier League with a, a good squad and they've all got a defensive midfielder. So belatedly, United cottoned on and, and maybe Ten Hag was was delusional up until the point. And that point might specifically have been the Brentford thrashing where Christian Eriksen was the deepest midfielder. So it will be interesting to see how long Tommy uh, stays in the team because he, he has done OK uh, in the last couple of games prior to the Arsenal game, which was by far and away his best performance of the season. But after one game this season, um, in the Brighton defeat, he was, he was dropped at Brentford. So ironically, by being dropped for that Brentford game, that's probably uh, done no it harm saved whatsoever. Him. Yeah. Yeah. You also need the McTominays of this world, don't you? As you're building a squad over the next few years. Well, like Manchester United's year, yeah. success was built on the Wes Browns, Darren Fletcher's, John O'Shea's, who could come in and always give you a 7-8 out of 10 performance. Yeah, yeah I, I completely agree. Um, I think there's this idealistic view, certainly from a, a faction of the fan base online, that your squad must only consist of world-class players or top-draw players and that only applies at, at a handful of clubs, um, may, maybe Manchester City, maybe Liverpool, certainly in the Premier League. But there are players who, I mean, historically at United, as you said there, that has always been a great help to them in that they've got players who can come in who are versatile, who um, are, are maybe a level above squad filler, but they're always going to be on the bench and whatever the occasion 
you're you're going to get a shift from there. And and McTominay has has overachieved in, in just really playing for the United first team. Uh, he was never somebody at academy level who struck anyone as being a certainty or, or really having much of a chance of getting in. But of course, Mourinho took a shine to him, and he seems to have transcended every manager that has come in there since. Um, Angle Di Maria's wife's comments last week I don't know if they were new or if they were a rehashing of the original comments or if it was like an updated version of a book that had been published but certainly they did the rounds and uh, people were suggesting that uh, it's going to be difficult for some people to settle in Manchester but it appears as if Anthony has settled in uh, Manchester very well kissing the badge and then out in the town last night Yes, I think he was at Hawksmoor on Deansgate, so it was quite a good choice of um, restaurant to, to, to celebrate his, his debut. Uh, I mean, I think Dean Maria's wife did say um, something about the, the city apparently being dreadful. Well, her experiences of it were dreadful um, during during lockdown a couple of years ago. But the, the days where foreign players would come to uh, cities in uh, England outside Manchester and just think that the weather was terrible and the food was terrible, just seeing like they, they belong to a bygone age now. These cities are so multicultural. Uh, you, you, you walk along Deansgate, you see the variety of restaurants and also the just just the, the, the makeup of the people. It's, it's, an, it's an extremely diverse city. It appeals to footballers. Um, a lot of footballers have had no problem settling in whatsoever. It, it seems like the, the Dean Maria's had a hang-up about Manchester because that's the one season where he had an absolute nightmare and they can clutch it as many straws as they like. But I think Louis van Gaal put it quite well a few years ago that he said that he played Dean Maria in literally every position and he didn't play well enough in any of them. He obviously scored the goal, Anthony, and took it took it really well. Uh, the other bit that United fans would like was the, the bit of nastiness to him. Like he was up for this. He was in the face of the Arsenal players throughout. He was leaving the boot in. He was maybe a bit rash at times. Was uh, diving into challenges. Uh, like he is your typical modern footballer, very lean, very quick. Uh, but if he has that edge as well, it'll really stand to him. I mean, it was it was noticeable, like Lissandra Martinez, uh, his former team at Ajax, how, how tiny he is as well in the flesh. But it'll be interesting as well to see how, with, with Brazil at the World Cup, with, with Anthony, Neymar, Richarlison, how many uh, how many opponents they actually wind up because they've they've got quite the, the skill set there with <laughs> with those three at the very least. Um, I mean, United did need a left-footed forward to, to balance out that attack. It was far too lopsided. There was an acceptance that they had too many players of a similar profile. Elanga, Martial, Rashford, Sancho, all right-footed, all have played their best football United from the left-hand side. So Anthony was always going to uh, slot in on the right. He's always going to start as well because of the investment. He was a priority target as well. Um, he, he adapted re- relatively well to where it was, it was quite a variable half he was having up until he scored, and he scored you know, a beautifully taken goal the way he just curled it around Aaron Ramsdale and made it look very easy, held his position to, to stay on side. Um, and, and he was taken off at a time that, you know, although United were winning, they were a little bit under the cosh, so there had to be an adjustment and, and Ten Hag wasn't going to be um, too sentimental about giving one of these one of these players that he, he developed into a 100 million euro player too much time when it was his first game in three weeks. So United fans have immediately taken to him uh, as you expected they would, given his, his character. And uh, it's, it's not taking him long to, to kiss the badge, which uh, yeah, 
I'm sure some supporters will turn their nose up about. I think it's, it's probably would have been wiser to give that a little bit longer. But when you score your, I think he's the first Premier League goal scoring Davison for United since since Rashford uh, six and a half years ago when he was a teenager. So when you when you tend to start off that well, uh, the, the fans do take to you very very quickly. Uh, you, you've already mentioned it's Sociedad on Thursday and then the games start to come thick and fast so the squad will be tested and I presume we're going to see a good bit more of Casemiro I do wonder what the final makeup of the midfield is going to be if you rest Christian Eriksen a bit given you know what's happened to him over the last couple of years or do you just play him every, every game it seems like he's um, he's unbreakable at the moment his performance was absolutely sensational so I, I, is this still a team like, do we feel like we know that the first choice is going to be maybe Casemiro comes in from Atomane, but everything else is fairly much written in stone at the moment? Or is there room for a midfield trio which evolves over the course of the season? Some games when they think they're going to have a load of ball, they don't play um, the, the two number eights. Uh, some games where they are going to have a load of the ball. I, like, is there, I, I, what is that midfield as the season progresses, do you think? I think it will be Casemiro coming in with with Eriksen and, um, and and Fernandez up top. I mean, there was very briefly a suggestion that Eriksen and, and Fernandez would be incompatible. I, I never really saw that myself. Eriksen's always had this ability to to play from deep, and as I said earlier, he, he pretty much is occupying that role that um, Ten Hag had intended uh, De Jong to to take on, but. In, in some ways, you, you'd prefer that to be Ericsson, that he's, he's Premier League experience. He knows what he can get away with, what he can't get away with. I, I think in some ways, what happened at Brentford, uh, playing Ericsson deep and United getting embarrassed the way they did, might be a blessing in disguise long term in that it was a wake-up call for, for Ten Hag and they did get Casemiro in the following week. They, they clearly moved, partly because of that result, probably because as well what was going on in the background uh, with with the protests, with the, the fan rancor. So I, I'd say going forward, it will be Casemiro, Eriksen and Dion. With, with the Sociedad game, I suspect that will be a, a game for Casemiro and Fred, which is a pretty good alternative to Matomni and Eriksen that Casemiro and Fred start regularly for Brazil. So if you're playing two Brazil starters in your first Europa League group game and that's seen as rotation, that's a much better position the United yeah. squad is in. Um, this season than it was obviously at the end of last season things have definitely improved one last question you you mentioned the the fan protest and how important it was in in sparking the spending spree has the fan protest uh, has the level dissipated somewhat I mean anytime we talk about this we get criticised by the fans saying oh you know nothing we're still protesting it's still as big as it ever was but it certainly doesn't feel as as big as it was two three weeks ago it seems as if a lot of the heat has been taken out of it by the fact that the team is doing well on the field again? There were protests again yesterday. Uh, for, for ourselves, I was in the Munich tunnel when they were protesting um, before the Norwich game in, in April and where the shutters came down, um, we, we missed the start of kickoff. So that, that's a risk you take. Some colleagues did go out to cover the process prior to the Liverpool game and they got back into the stadium, I think the 22nd minute. So about half a dozen of them missed United's best period of whole match and missed them going 1-0 up, which is is not great when you're there to essentially cover a football match. But it was always going to subside after the Liverpool game and that, as you say, United have won four matches since and the Glazer family, despite um, the the statement coming out from Sir Jim Ratcliffe, spokesman, 
they have never at any point shown any inclination to to sell up. Uh, they've obviously made adjustments. There has been, as Ten Hag rather diplomatically said, an adaptation with the budget in that they went from looking at Arnautovic and Rabiot, who'd have cost barely £30 million between them, to signing two players for something like £150 million. So the, the start of the season has definitely had an, an impact on enhancing the squad. But I think these things are natural. Uh, when things are going well, the the rancor is is not as um, as febrile as it is when when they're going badly. And at the start of the season, it was going very very badly, and they've they've managed to turn it around. So the impact of the protests is not going to be as as noticeable. It's not going to be as newsworthy as well. Uh, I don't think there were any colleagues outside yesterday that were covering it and speaking to a friend who's a season ticket holder who um, participates in these protests but is, is aware of how flawed they are. Uh, he was he was not too happy with how it was choreographed yesterday, but that's it's, it's going to be to different people's tastes. I mean, everybody's going to have an opinion on what the best way forward is, but there's no, there's, there's no uh, perfect solution for, for the United supporters in terms of ousting the Glazers because as I said there's a very safe distance uh, between the Glazers and the Manchester United supporters and that, that is the Atlantic Ocean Samuel great to have you with us as ever thanks a million cheers thank you very much that's uh, Samuel Luckers there uh, you can read his stuff on the Manchester Evening News website it is 8.39 this morning if you want to get in touch we'd love to hear from you 87 180 is the WhatsApp number now the Premier League is back we've teamed up with one of Europe's largest sports events ticketing and hospitality companies Champions Travel to give you an opportunity to win a €250 Euro Champions Travel voucher every day this week that can be used on Premier League match trips as well as a host of other sporting events. Daily winners will be entered into a grand prize draw where one lucky winner will win a trip from a selection of Premier League games with flights and two nights accommodation included. To enter, just tell us who this. It's not good enough. It's not good enough. Speaking uh, on BT Sport after the, uh, the draw. Who's this? It's not good enough. It's not good enough. You can uh, tweet us your guess on our main Twitter account, at Off the Ball. We'll um, uh, yeah, announce the winner uh, before the end of the show. That's uh, at Off the Ball on Twitter with your answer. Carl is here. Carl, good morning to you. Morning, lads. How's it going? What's going on? Very good. Can't complain now. All well. You weren't at Electric Picnic over the weekend? No, I wasn't. I was uh, playing club football. Oh, Ooh. yeah. Here we go. How'd go it go? Lost by point. Oh, no. Yeah. Who do you play with? I play with my club in Sligo and it's grown so like Sligo Intermediate Championship um, yeah so uh, I'll be sulking for the week who beat you? <laughs> um, team called Bunnanadden yeah so that was yesterday so and it's grown that have been hot favourites I was going to say well, we'd leave juggernaut we've at, least, we've at least heard of you guys <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, it's not quite on the level of uh, Kilmuckle Croaks and uh and Bally Gunner maybe in Waterford yesterday, but anyway. Um, but uh, sure, you could offer free golf membership to the best players around Sligo and drag them all in. Surfing, seaweed bats, the full works. I mean, if anyone wants to come down, any inter-county footballers, you know. Oh, and you've been working for weeks to get back from injury and everything. Yeah, Is so, that it over? Straight knockout? No, no, we've got two more okay. group games ah, left, no. so we've got uh, got two games over Confidence seems a bit shocked, though, it's got to be said now after yeah. that defeat. The colour's gone out of my cheeks. Where were you playing? I was uh, full back. Right. Full back yesterday. And how many goals did your team cost? You know what, I, I actually, oh. bad weather on Saturday, right? So I was like, I'm going to buy metal studs. Bought Puma Kings. 
So apparently that means that you're edging towards the end of your career, oh, okay. I was told by some of the younger players. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> so um, I think the signs are ominous. Wow. But, uh, because the uh, brand is so old? Is that how I it is? I don't know. It's I like, don't know. They're I mean, solid boots. It's a lot of the team spirit, is it? Ah, sure, look. Surely you're like that. Ferrari. Old school. Old school always um, a Testarossa. But they were the boots back in the day, I remember. Uh, yeah. Well, what, 15 years ago, 20 years ago? They had a, they had a nice, uh, what, about a five-year spell before the Predator came out. Yeah, 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 yeah. The Predator then took over. But I think I, I think the the black is coming back into fashion. Oh, yeah. You see more it's and more actually, players now. Yeah. It's really hard to get just plain black boots now from any brand. Right. Um, that's what you want. You don't want to... Buma King didn't work, though. No. No. Okay. So uh, maybe I'll change boots again for next weekend. Maybe we'll see what happens. But... um. Ah, it's good to see the, the club football and hurling, I think, has taken a new lease of life now because it's got the space kind of to, I suppose, thrive, if you like. I guess it probably hasn't really taken off in the national mindset yet because the county finals and stuff haven't really kicked in yet. Like I think the Mayo Championship only started yesterday. So. I think your point about the... So it, it, there's loads of group games happening at the moment. And yeah. So the Jeopardy hasn't arrived yet where um, it's do or die. They're the games that everybody ends up watching. Well, it's arrived in Dublin. Yeah. Like the group stage finished yesterday for uh, the majority of teams, and like quite a few of the big teams are gone. Mm. Well, you say they're big teams. Your, your, your big team is gone, are they? Jews were in the final last year. Uh, I mean, that was obviously yeah. a fluke. No, wasn't. They're constantly <laughs> in the final. Flat in the pan. Competing by a point. Yeah. I, I was down at your picnic, but apparently I think there were seven points up uh, against 14 men in the first half, and I ended up losing by a point. Yeah. Uh, and Valley Munner gone? Lost yesterday. So, like, Kilmacud against Kula is a big game. Like, that's kind of the start of the big games now. In the like, Manchester stage. City against Newcastle. <laughs> the Evil Empire, is that what you're saying? <laughs> Sports washing project. <laughs> wow. Go on. Keep going there. Yeah. <laughs> but, um. So, Croaks. Yeah. This is, the Croaks story is interesting, right? Because, um, I don't know if everybody saw, but uh, they didn't pick Shane Walsh from the start. But the game was over by the time they even thought about introducing him because uh, Rory O'Carroll scored two amazing goals. Like, kind of slalom like hey everybody remember yeah, me I mean yeah. and also look as fresh as he did when he was breaking onto the Dublin team 15 years ago was it I mean probably not 15 years ago but it's not far off it it was the 10 between 09 something in the water out there between Rory O'Carroll Keno Sullivan Paul Mannion they all look younger now than when they were winning All-Ireland a decade ago I was going to talk about Mannion because Mannion was absolutely sensational like mm. looked as fit as and skinny as a whip and obviously playing in America really suited him I do wonder if there's like a, a group of intercounty footballers who reach a level where they're like oh, why, do, why do I why do I suffer through the turmoil of being an intercounty footballer when I can just go off to America have the fun and whatever else and then come back and play club football in summertime when the weather's good mm. why would you suffer through the National League well are you suggesting that they go back to the county when they no, maybe, maybe not. What's well, the... Well, because you want to test yourself at the very highest level. Like Paul Mannion's been there, have, done yeah. that. But yeah, you, I, I think, understandably, if you get to late 20s, maybe a lot of those guys think, screw it. I think you're going to see to some of the mid-20s going, and the, the, the offers from America are going to get bigger and bigger, right? And better and better. Yeah. And the... The only championship that matters. Well, it, it, I mean, it's, it matters. You're going to have your fun whether or not you win, right? <laughs> Uh, so it matters less less stress and then you come home and you play for the, the team that everybody keeps telling you means the most anyway I do wonder if there's like a law of unintended consequences that a lot of very good players are going to go and spend time having crack at a high level and um, 
and then coming home and doing it for the jersey and no one can complain. Why would you play for the county? Oh, I play for my club. Well, I was a much better club man anyway. But you're, you're, you're. So the crack will the the. Crack I'm talking money. So, I'm talking money. The crack will be money. so great, uh, yeah, that it will outweigh the pride of representing your county. Well, if you've if you've done it for a couple of years, you know, you have to get to a you have to get to a level where you're gonna you know get paid properly in America, right? So you you can't. It's not going to be like the the lads twenty six, twenty seven on the panel. Right, has to be somebody who's had like three or four years, good years, that would make your uh, team of the league, um, and maybe an all star, that kind of category of player who, in their mid twenties, like I've had enough of this, I've had enough so, of being so shouted at by some. The, uh, the wages on the sites in New York are are nice, attractive, mm. uh, especially if it's one of those no show jobs. Uh, Cahill, uh, would you dump Ennis Grown and spend I'm somewhere near good enough to play in uh, in the states? <laughs> Absolutely not. See, it becomes a badge of honour. Were you good enough to play in the States? Yeah, yeah well, exactly. exactly. We put the feelers out for you there. If anybody Thanks. needs a fullback yeah. who, uh, next season. <laughs> yeah. Coming Absolutely. with the Puma Kings. <laughs> uh, Mannion's unbelievable, though. It's like it's, it is unfair. Why? Yeah. Like, him not playing for Dublin next year is a big loss. Oh, like, he is still yeah. sensational. But you're, if you're Desi Farrell, you have to, like, and Dublin, you have to do everything in your power to try and get him back into the fold. Like, that's the difference probably between Dublin winning the All Ireland this year, maybe, and and just falling short against Kerry. It's very close to it anyway, mm. you know? Well, between him and McCaffrey and Calm being injured. Yeah. So is it Kilmacud against Kula in the next round? I think so, Oof. yeah, in the quarterfinals, yeah. yeah. Hasty. Yeah. One last thing in this, right? Very small crowd. Yeah. And the quality of football on display is very high. Like, there seems to be a disconnect between um, Dublin supporters and the clubs and I'm just surprised at that. Well... With the exception of the final, uh, you never see a big crowd in Parnell Park, it seems. And maybe yesterday it's because it's Kilmacud Croaks against Temple Oak Sing Street, who are about five miles apart from each other, but, you know, they're having to go to the north side to play their match. Far. far enough, Chair. It's not that far. You know, I live right in the middle of that. Stop whining yeah. about it. Parnell Park is a long way away. It really isn't. What you they should be doing is building building a nice 15,000-seater stadium on the south side so we don't have to make that trek. It's wow. outrageous. Wow. So is it, is it any wonder They're doing that, that there's anyway. nobody at these you're, games? You're getting the, aren't you getting the one in the but there is, I think there is a uh, disconnect uh, that's not there in the rural clubs between the senior club team and the, and the size no, and the size of the actual club. Like Kilmacud Croaks are the biggest club yeah. in the country. Temple Oak wouldn't be one of the bigger clubs on the south side, but you see it regardless of, I think, whether it's Ballyboden, Jude's, Kula, any of them that with the exception of when you get to the the finals there's not what you would get at a in Mayo or Sligo or one of these counties because you know I think people turn up they bring their kids on a Saturday morning and they that's maybe the connection they have with the club yeah I wonder is that fixable maybe not yeah it'll be interesting to note kind of across the board the attendances at the club fixtures throughout this autumn because obviously the J have given the clubs the space now just to see is there really that interest there that people are going to embrace the club scene um, kind of in the month of September when generally speaking in the past you would have been focused on your All-Ireland Finals and the other thing is the madness of like, why is the Mayo Championship only starting yesterday like, is it to let all the lads go off to New York and enjoy their summer maybe maybe, that, maybe that's genius I don't know but it's like we can't have this oh, split season no we want to have you know players getting play in August now September when the weather's a bit better and then actually we're just going to skip like, Mayo went out the Championship it feels like a long time ago. Like, I'm well over the disappointment at this stage. Are you? It feels like about 10 weeks ago they were beating in the championship. You yeah. keep bringing it up. So why, like, why are they only starting now when Dublin have played their entire round robin when other counties have already had their county finals and they are just yeah. starting? Yeah, yeah. 
Well, then you have the other aspect of it where some counties will give clubs and players time to go away on holidays with their families and stuff, maybe in August time, around the August bank holiday. And I think what players want more than anything is certainty with dates, where they're not changing a week or two before the game. If they're given the dates, whether it's that it's going to start in the first weekend of September, if you know that in March or April, then you can kind of plan your year with your family if you want to go away on holidays and people with kids and stuff. That's pretty important. And, and has that been your experience this year in Sligo that you kind of knew exactly when everything was going to happen? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And the championship probably started in most counties, I would suggest, similar enough time frame. But it's just you have that bit of certainty, I think. And basically that's what players want, uh, I think, around the country. And... For, from the Mayo point of view, I know a lot of players went to America this summer, didn't they? So they're obviously, I would think most of them are back with their clubs now for the club championship. And there was quite a strong league programme in Mayo this year. There was a good league final between mm. Knockmore and Casabar. Like, and they, um, the clubs were well stocked, I think, for the league. And it gave the county players time to take some time off and recharge the batteries as well. Look, they were assuming they were going to win the All-Ireland. We need a good month of celebration. That's there you go. You've, Optimistic you've as ever. Got a plan for success. Exactly. Uh, anything else going on? Well, in the tennis overnight, Nick Kyrgios uh, said he's shown New York his talent. Finally, after beating defending champion Daniel Medvedev to reach the US Open quarterfinals, he knocked out the world number one in four sets overnight. And Medvedev now looks set to lose that number one spot in the world. Uh, in the women's draw, fifth seed Anjibora safety through after her straight sets win over Verona Kudermetova. In the men's draw today, Rafa Nadal goes up against Francis Tiafo, the 22nd seed. In the women's singles, the top seed Iga Svantec among those in action later on today as well. In the golf over the weekend, Leona Maguire racked up another top 10 finish with a strong showing at the Dana Open on the LPGA Tour. She finished in a tie for 10th on 13 under par, five shots behind the winner, Gabby Lopez. Max Verstappen has extended his lead at the top of the Formula One driver standings to 109 points. He won his home race, the Dutch Grand Prix, finishing ahead of George Russell. And there's racing in Galway this evening, where the first goes to post at 10 past four. All right, good stuff, Carl. It's 8.51 this morning here. If you want to get in touch with us, we'd love to hear from you. Oh, eight. Seven nine one eighty one eighty. That's the WhatsApp number. You can uh, get us at Off the Ball AM on Twitter, or you can leave a comment on the YouTube stream as well. Uh, OTBAM brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish today. Highlight of the weekend and worth checking out online in the MLS. Javier Hernandez has a penalty in the ninety seventh minute for LA Galaxy. The little P. There, it, it was a little panenka. It turned out from the little P. Uh, he's on for a hat trick. It's two all. The ninety seventh minute. They need this because they're trying to get into the playoffs. And he tries the Panenka and it barely gets off the ground. Oh, no. Last kick of the game. End off. Wow. Sorry, he's for LA Galaxy. LA Galaxy, yeah. Um, not the other LA team that I didn't know existed until Gareth Bale signed for them. No. Uh, very good. He's got all the history and the weight of expectation of the LA Galaxy on his shoulders. Bale seems to be having a good time. He has a good time wherever he goes. Yeah. He's looked, not he's on the pitch, but... He's looked after himself well. He's, you know, and then he's going to go to the World Cup and wrap it up. And maybe go pro as a golfer. Quite possibly. Why not? It is 8.53. Uh, we're talking Liverpool now and um, an interesting game against uh, Everton at the weekend, but kind of in keeping with Liverpool's season so far. Harriet Pryor is with us to pick through it. Harriet, good morning to you. How are you? Morning. Yeah, I'm fine. Thanks. How are you guys? Uh, we're, we're six games in. Are there trends emerging from Liverpool's season? It's difficult to get a, a grip uh, on how well or otherwise... Uh, Jurgen Klopp feels the team are playing um, and luckily enough uh, Manchester City also dropped points at the weekend so it wasn't a catastrophic uh, dropping of points but th- there's definitely been a sense that maybe they're just not firing at the moment for whatever reason 
Yeah, like you mentioned, there we're six games in and we've got nine points. I think that's not the ideal point you want to be at at the start of the season, especially coming off the back of last season when we were fighting on all four fronts and we took it right to the last stage of every single competition. It, it just seems this season like we're just a little bit off it and I don't know if there's a variety of factors involved, whether there is a bit of a hangover from last season and a few players just are still finding their way a bit, whether... They're trying to adapt to the new system. And I think that might be the, the biggest change for me is that we've obviously lost Sadio Mane. We've got Darwin Nunez in and, and he's more of an out-and-out striker. And we've had to change the formation to adapt to him. And at the moment, it, it doesn't quite seem to be working. And I don't think you can pin that on individuals. But yeah, there's there's no denying that we have dropped a lot of points at this stage. And, and luckily, other teams around us have as well. So we're not a million miles off. But I think we need to find our way soon. Otherwise, we will end up a million miles off. Liverpool games are almost too entertaining at the start of the season. Like it was incredible that that somehow finished scoreless. Liverpool hit the woodwork about three times, but Everton had countless chances as well. It, it's hard to remember, with the exception of, and maybe it's not an exception, looking at this season a couple of years ago with all the injuries, where Liverpool are got at so easily. Like every time a team comes forward, there's these massive gaps, and it does feel as why Everton's a little bit off. There's also something systemic there that they need to fix quite quickly. Yeah, I'm not sure if you can if you can sort of say there's massive gaps because I think the style of football they play is high risk and high reward and they, they play this high line and so much is spoken about it, whether it's a good thing or not. But ultimately, it's what's helped us win trophies in the last few years because we squeeze teams, we push so high up the pitch and, and, and play such an attacking style of football. And unfortunately, that does mean, like you mentioned, that sometimes on the counter-attack, there are spaces for the opposition to exploit. And I think that's what we really saw against Everton there were stages where it was six on three and they had six attackers running forward and we only had three defenders back and and they were able to find gaps that that shouldn't have existed but last season I feel we were more effective at at defending from from those counter-attacking moments this season it it sort of has gone a bit wrong and and then and then yeah they we do concede goals and we do concede goals first in a lot of games and we were lucky we were lucky not to concede we were lucky not to score but we were also lucky not to concede against Everton because they had a lot of really good chances. So, yeah, it, sometimes the, the goals we consider against the run of play because we have played so well and then they just manage to catch us on the counter. So something has got to change. It's a control thing for me. How are we controlling the game? Are we letting the opposition control the pace of it? Are we letting them keep the ball too much? Are we, let, are we being good enough out of possession? Those are questions that I've started to ask. Uh, the the uh, so that's is that a midfield issue? Or are we coming back to like? Cause it, well, you look at that midfield at the weekend. Like Harvey Elliott and Fabio Carvalho are two exceptionally talented young players, but they're a world away from Gini Vinealdum and Jordan Henderson either side of Fabinho or even Thiago. Who like there has been a transformation of Liverpool over the last couple of years since Thiago arrived, where they wanted more control. The rock and roll football had gone a little bit like they were more comfortable in possession and happier in possession, whereas. Elliot and Carvalho, I would have looked at and thought, well, Elliot can slot in for Salah, Carvalho can slot in for Diaz. You would, I wouldn't have really seen the two of them as real out-and-out central midfielders. Certainly not in the Merseyside derby uh, in a game of... It, it, it just feels like they're in a little bit of limbo in what they want from their midfield or what they can have from the midfield at the moment. Yeah, there's obviously a lot of injuries and you mentioned some of the names there. Thiago, hopefully, will be back next week. Carvalho, for me, he hasn't got a best position yet. And, and you're right, he's a really good, talented young player. But is he going to play in midfield long term? Probably not. Probably will be more of an attacking player. Elliot, I think, will be a out-and-out midfielder. But yeah, that the balance is looking a little bit off in, in most games in that midfield. And Liverpool's midfield is a difficult place 
to play because it's just very functional. It supports the fullbacks going forward. It supports it provides chances for the for the attackers, but it also just shields the the back four. And at the moment, it's just not quite clicking. And I think it's funny because you look at the team at the weekend and Carvalho Elliot Klopp did everything to make sure that we would score a goal and that it wouldn't be a nil nil, another another nil nil and in the Merseyside derby. But it just didn't come off, and for whatever reason. I do think that the midfield is a slight problem, but I think that's more caused by the shape. I mean, changed to a four-two-four at the weekend with only two midfielders, Elliot being one of the two, and that, that for me doesn't work. So how are we going to support them best? How are we going to make sure that the shape is working for the midfield that are a little bit inexperienced at the moment and provide chances? Because at the moment, that's not quite coming off. We should talk about Mo Salah as well. What is the... I mean, look, is it is it just a, a, a weird thing where the... Uh, misses have happened together or the opportunities haven't fallen together in a sequence and that sequence will just be broken through randomness. Um, is that what we're seeing or is there something about the new players and the new partnerships and actually uh, he's missing the, the settled nature of the relationship that he built up over five or six seasons with his uh, previous duo who he was playing with. I mean, Firmino, obviously he's played with Firmino a good bit this season as well. Um, so what, what's your take on what's going on with um, Mo Salah at the moment? Yeah, he has obviously missed chances that you'd expect him in previous seasons or previous games to have to have finished. But I think for me, it's again a shape thing where he feels so far away from the goal in a lot of games. Like for me, you know, he comes on and he's you know he drops so far back. Salah's just pulled really far out wide, and I don't know if that is to facilitate Darwin coming in and the fact that they haven't quite formed their their partnership yet, as hopefully they will later on in the season. So yeah, for me, it's less that there's a problem with him as an individual. It's more that he's just a bit far away from goal to even make the most of opportunities that come his way. So, yeah, it's that one long term doesn't particularly worry me. I think they'll work out. I think he'll work out the positions he needs to be in to help Darwin and Darwin likewise with him. Because I still do think some of the connections on the pitch have worked well, like Harvey Elliott and Mo Salah's sort of relationship on the pitch they're building is is going well for me. So it's an interesting one, but I would like, yeah, I would like all of the attackers to start finishing some of the chances they get soon because hit the post twice on, no, three times, I think, actually, at the weekend. And, and it's frustrating when you just think, oh, one of those chances has got to go in, but they don't. So, yeah, the, the finishing ability, but we know that's not a problem. It shouldn't be a problem. So, yeah, i just like to see Salah and Diaz getting a little bit closer to the goal in, in the next few games. It's interesting when you said duo there alongside Salah and you're talking about Nunez and Diaz or Firmino and Mane. I was thinking more Henderson and Alexander-Arnold as the duo for Salah, because he's, who got the best mm. out of them. Because yeah. so many Liverpool goals over the last five years come the same way, where there's the overlap from Alexander-Arnold. Salah just dip back, he'll pick the ball up in the edge of the area, something Bring will be in. created from there. And the cover that Henderson provides to allow Alexander-Arnold to get into that position. And I don't think you can underestimate the importance of Henderson's injuries and decline, a natural decline on Liverpool's struggles, the energy he brought, like said this for years, maybe the most underrated player in modern football has been what Jordan Henderson has done for Liverpool and how he allowed Alexander-Arnold to play his best, how he provided so much cover, so much energy, intensity to the style of football that Jurgen Klopp wanted. Like their record in big matches for years with Henderson when he played in the middle of midfield was insane. And now he's just not quite there. He definitely looks like injuries are getting on top of him a little bit. You know, he's making very uncharacteristic mistakes. And how they replace him is maybe the most important decision. And you do wonder if they've been a little bit hesitant again, Harriet. I heard 
Jimmy Carter last week saying like they probably need a full new midfield over the next 12 months like they'll be looking at two or three players and should they've gone and tried to they'll have their targets should they've come forward and brought one of them and spent the money now because there is history recent history of Liverpool delaying uh, whether it was centre halves when the injury crisis struck whether it was sticking with Loris Carries for a season too long that would you be worried already that you'd be reflecting on this season going they've left themselves short in midfield when it was obvious from the start of the season that they might be short in midfield yeah, I think there's a few things to reflect on there. I think you're right to say it's sort of that, a problem on that right-hand side. It is that link-up between the three of them. And he takes Trent off in the second half of the weekend, which I didn't think helped us to create any chances at all. Because like you say, so many of our goals come from Trent assisting Salah and that that connection on the right with Henderson, a key part of that. I don't necessarily think that Henderson has sort of dropped drastically in form this season when he was playing well at the end of last season. I think that maybe he just like you mentioned there because there is a lack of midfielders he hasn't got the significant and sufficient rest that he needs to be able to come in the games that he does need to play well in and perform to his best level and I I also think he's getting to the age now maybe where he needs to be in that number six role rather than a a more attacking midfielder so him and Fabinho could sort of switch and then I would like to have seen another another attacking midfielder come in and we know that Jude Bellingham is a long-term target and come in and slot in in that position and that would have allowed a whole load of um, you know freedom for our attack, for our midfielders and it would have allowed Henderson to get more of a rest so there does need to be a transformation and you mentioned there we waited we did wait for, for Canate and that did cost us sort of a really really good season when we had all those defensive injuries because we waited till the summer to bring to bring our long term target in and I do feel a little bit like we've done that again we've waited too long and, and we know that we want you better and is he even going to be available next year do we do we know with certainty that we're going to get him absolutely not so I would have liked to have seen another another attacking midfielder come in obviously we brought in Arta we don't know what he's going to be like where he's going to slot in yet so we've got to bide our time a little bit and see how he gets on but yeah definitely providing Henderson with a bit more rest is is key moving forward especially if he's starting to pick up a few more injuries and then the same goes for Thiago and Fabinho as well but yeah definitely need a bit of revigoration in that midfield area going into next season in particular That that season that we were talking about where the uh, centre-backs the injury crisis hit it was a real struggle for Liverpool to get into the Champions League in the end uh, of that season. And so, you know, that's not that long ago. Everybody remembers it. Uh, is there a fear that this season could get away? Or does City's result at the weekend kind of ease a little bit of those fears and actually give everybody a bit of calm? If this is all fine, don't worry about it. And it's going to be a weird season anyway with like the, uh, the season now and then the season after the World Cup as well. Yeah, that was that that was season was a, a struggle for a variety of reasons. But I think this this one is very different in its nature because that came after the Christmas period and we sort of knew that this was going to be our situation for the rest of the season. We were going to have to cope without any defence or any senior def- defensive players. And we knew that that was the situation we were left with after January. This is a bit different in that we know players are going to come back. We know Thiago's back in training this week, hopefully. We don't know the extent of some of those midfielders' injuries, but hopefully Artemelo sets in quickly and then some of these other players start to come back. So I think it is slightly different in its nature in that that season we kind of knew we were left with what we had. Now we can think ahead, Okay, who are we getting back? How are we going to use them? How are they going to make a difference? And how can we push forward from here? You you can't say all is lost when you are six points behind the lead and five points behind Manchester City. I don't think it's feasible to say all is lost at this point in the season. But change does need to come and we start need to start getting results very soon because you can't afford to drop many points 
in seasons when, when teams are getting over 90 points, as has been the reality of the last few years. Is there any frustration amongst the fan base at the lack of spending? And if there is, is that because they think Klopp doesn't want to spend the money right now because the players aren't available? Or do they blame FSG for not investing in the playing stock? It's definitely nothing to do with Klopp. I think he's been quite clear that he doesn't control what the club spends its money on. And he was quite clear that he wanted another midfielder in the last sort of period of the transfer window. So I don't think anyone's necessarily blaming Klopp. There are obviously elements of of the fan base that would like to spend more money on players and that are frustrated that FSG haven't come and and done that and that they feel that other teams have had so much money spent, especially in this window. You look at Arsenal, Tottenham, City bringing in more players and, and why have we not brought in more? There will always be fans that want more players in and I think that's absolutely fair enough. So I don't think that it lies on clock, but I think there is a yeah part of the fan base that is frustrated at FSG and the fact that there hasn't been more investment in a team because we feel this is a team that could win everything because there's so much raw talent in there and I think you know just one or two more reinforcements would go a long way. But maybe in Jan- January we'll we'll see where the situation lies and, and another player will be brought in to sort of ease those difficulties. We'll see. That frustration never really. Or, 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 this is a question: Does that frustration ever find voice amongst the fans? in form of protest or how does it manifest itself? Not not really so far. I think mainly I just see stuff on Twitter, to be honest. So I'm not sure. Um, I'm, I'm not sure how much I can comment on that. But no, not not at the moment. I think you can, you know, look at Manchester United and the situation they're in with their ownership and there is protest and a lot of a lot of discomfort. I think most you know elements of our fan base can recognise there are strengths of FSG and there are weaknesses as well. But we'll see what what happens in the future. But no, no, no protests yet. The Champions League group, nice of uh, Manchester United to sign all of Ajax's best players <laughs> to make sure that it's a much easier Champions League group for Liverpool. Uh, obviously, they've got um, the trip to Napoli this week. The squad is, is the squad big enough at the moment, Harriet, to be able to compete on all four fronts the way they did last season? Yeah, I think the Champions League will be a welcome change, to be honest. It'll be nice to be in, a, in another competition and put the, the struggles in the Premier League to the back of their minds a bit. The squad, yeah, I think the squad will be fine. If we can get through the group stages and just make sure that we don't sort of need to do anything drastic, pick up points away from home and get wins at Anfield and hopefully hopefully we'll be able to do that. Although, you know, our results haven't been great. We'll, we should be okay. And then by the time we get to the group stages, hopefully our squad will be back to a bit more normality. We've already seen Jota back at the weekend. It was a huge boost. So, yeah, I feel I feel hopefully confident about the Champions League and, the, and getting through the group. So we'll see how the next few weeks pan out. But I think this, the squad depth shouldn't be a problem, hopefully, come... Well, come the end of the group stages, so just get through those and, and see where we end up. Yeah, it does feel like it's sort of just damage limitation at the moment. So get a bit of momentum in the Champions League because suddenly you don't want to be in a position where you're going into those last couple of games and you desperately need to win and you're having to put out your full starting eleven. And likewise in the Premier League, the positive for Liverpool is they've played as poorly as they have, and they're only five points behind Manchester City. They meet middle of October at Anfield. Like you want to be in a position in that where you know, if you win your you're close, you're within yeah. a couple of points in them. Yeah. Uh, you don't want to be positioned that if you're losing, you're 12 points behind and it's all over and it's it's gone. Yeah, that would be a disaster. But um, I think those injuries, like John on the bench, that was a, a, a big step forward. And if um, they are going to get Thiago back, that does give them a, a completely different outlook. And it ha- like the positives are Carvalho and Elliot. Like Carvalho has settled in straight away. He's had his moment. Like that moment is uh, a standout one that you waited an entire career for the goal against Newcastle. And like, Harvey Elliot, uh, I see a lot of talk in the papers this morning about the England squad for the World Cup. Like he is has the potential to be world class. 
Okay. All right, Harriet, good stuff. Thanks a million. Thanks so much. Bye. That's Harriet Pryor from the Anfield Wrap there, giving us her thoughts on the situation at Liverpool. Nine minutes past nine. Um, there's definitely uh, simmering tension among some of the Liverpool fans in our comments. Um, where is the one that I was looking for particularly? Why is nobody saying the truth here? I don't really think it's been said enough. Mane is such a loss with his work rate, says Shane Dunn. Not one of Liverpool's front three do this. Now Salah's counting his money. Darwin is an overrated Andy Carroll. Diaz is selfish. Wow. Is, is the Andy Carroll comparison just because of the sort of long hair and the ponytail and all that? Plays for Liverpool. Um, yeah. Like, Salah... Salah was always a peculiar one in that there would often be games where he'd be somewhat anonymous and they'd struggle to get him into it and then out of nothing he's suddenly got two goals. Uh, you know, things aren't falling for them. They're not playing particularly well but also, you know, as I say, they're hitting the woodwork three times. Like Salah, right at the end of the game, should score. You know, Nunes scores that goal. You've scored in the derby. Everything's forgotten about with the red card. Uh, but, yeah, things aren't perfect and, you know, if if this season falls away, I think there will be a lot of questions about the ownership because while they spent big on Darwin Nunez, like if Jurgen Klopp wants a midfielder and not giving him a midfielder, what the hell are you doing? Like, look at his track record. Doesn't make any sense, does it? And as I, brilliant I, as he is at developing players and as brilliant as he was with Trent and with Andy Robertson yeah. and even Salah and Jota, but the, the difference is Alisson and Van Dijk. Yeah. That was the transformative moment. They bought the best goalkeeper, they bought the best at half and they spent the money. And they're really rich. And Exactly. As, a, as an ownership group, they don't get... Um, Anything like the uh, same level of protest or... Well, they're not taking the money out of the club the way well, the Glazers are. Are we, are we sure about that? Like, do we know everything about the, how the finances run? And haven't they... Like, they're redeveloping this. Like, again, part of like Manchester the, United problems are deep. Look at Old Trafford. Like, sure. It's just, one, just one point on that, though, right? They are redeveloping the stadium, but uh, they have allowed the whole area to go into rack and ruin. And, like, most of the stuff that was written about that stopped getting written about mm. because they hired the people who were doing the writing about it. Do you know, like, they're, they're not this, uh, they're not this socialist organisation who are investing in the city of Liverpool for the good of the city of Liverpool. They've spotted an opportunity to make loads and loads and loads and loads and loads and loads and loads of money. Absolutely. Now, it's a different way of, of, um, of running the, the money side of it from what Manchester United are doing and it's probably less naked, but the, we shouldn't confuse why FSG got involved. It's at some point they'll sell and they'll take the cash out then. Ah, and what will Liverpool be worth? Like all of these owners are looking at what happened with Chelsea and two and a half billion and thinking, well, if they're worth that, like what are Liverpool worth now and the profit that can be made? So, I, 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 you know, money can't be that big of an issue. No, it, it really, it really isn't. And so they've been completely tight with the purse strings at a situation at a time when they could have invested. And kept Liverpool toe for toe with City, uh, which is very difficult because Manchester City have like this massive advantage in the fact that they're backed by a state, mm. and that the sports washing thing is is like a real thing. And Manchester City have also managed to completely flirt or skirt uh, financial fair play, as have PSG. And anyway, that's all broken. But um, could Trent Alexander Arnold switch midfield and maybe invest in a right back? They need to think about this, or like, like because he has the energy. I know the analysts would point out that like the weakness in Alexander-Arnold's game is defensively and 
that would also be an issue when he's playing in midfield that he doesn't have that bit of awareness to well, look over his shoulder and realise when the run is being made maybe he's not going to be the exact same player as Jordan Henderson but he'll give so what you but, why, but you don't want him to be Jordan Henderson like Trent Alexander-Arnold is a generational fullback yes defensively he makes too many mistakes but the reason they have him there is because they shouldn't have to defend Liverpool's Liverpool's entire system is built on the defenders not having to defend that they're always pressing it's always high up that 90% of what Alexander-Arnold does is in an attacking sense where the problems have always occurred is when that's been flipped and teams get at them so if Liverpool continue to struggle to hold on to possession the way they have and continue to struggle to turn over teams in midfield Alexander-Arnold is going to continue to get exposed but he's more assists than anybody like he constantly creates goals. Why would you try and take out one of your biggest strengths? Because he costs you what is still the odd goal. I know teams are starting to target him, but yeah. if the midfield was functioning, they wouldn't be able to target him. Um, and is Joe Gomez good enough? I think Joe Gomez uh, feels like he has a mistake in him. and Not, not a uh, great thing for centre-back. And has obviously had a huge amount of injuries um, and is behind Kanate. Like if Kanate and Matip, so he's basically fourth choice centre half but that's where they are again now Matip was back uh, Kanate's probably still a little bit away like Joe Gomez should be good enough to fill in for two or three matches okay, so but I, 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 I do honestly think that nearly all their problems are stemming from midfield ok I, and I can see that I do, I do so the Athletic had their piece about Salah and Salah's touches are mm. like fewer 10 fewer touches in the Everton game than he had on average two seasons ago and it's like five on last season so he's, he's definitely seeing less of the ball doesn't seem to be that much further from goal but uh, they're, they're working that out and you would assume they will um, Andy Robertson being dropped for that game was he dropped for that game? is that a dropping? are we now entering a situation where he really likes Simicast and he's going to give Simicast minutes in big games? Is Robertson somehow rested for the Napoli game in a way? Is there, is there load management happening? I think we're going to see this from all the squads. Maybe there's something deeper going on and there was definitely a period last season where it looked as though Jimmy Cass was going to put real pressure on Andy Robertson and Robertson responded and Jimmy Cass come on for the final 20 minutes of the last couple of matches uh, even at times when Robertson was playing well and you know, they could well be looking at the data and the injuries are picking up and saying he's hitting some sort of a red zone. We need to take him out. Uh, but they also need to start quickly and I think the next month is going to be just one of the most interesting we've seen in the Premier League as to how teams approach it and how many changes they're making game on game when they are playing every three days and I always think it's only when you sit down and think about how actually these days go and how little work they can do and how little training and having to fly straight after a match and then you get one day there and then you're straight back and you've You've got another massive game. Yeah, well, he's, like, he's been complaining about that. Oh, don't worry, Klopp. But they'll all, they'll all yeah. be, they'll all be complaining about that. Uh, right, sixteen minutes past nine this morning here on OTBAM. We'd love to hear from you. Oh eight seven nine one eighty one eighty is the WhatsApp number, and we're brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. Uh, here's what's on OTB Sports Radio for you today. At one o'clock, Keith Andrews meets Philly McMahon. Splunk is live at three. Uh, Culture Hall of Fame is Peter Coonan, and OTB Gold is Sonia O'Sullivan at six. Make sure you follow us across all our social channels. We're on Instagram, we're on YouTube, we're on TikTok. And you can get us uh, on our two Twitter accounts as well, or multiple ones, really. Back after this break with Alan Quinn. And first, here's Stephen Doyle speaking with Graham Gartland about the summer transfer window and the problems at Leicester. I suppose transfers is the big thing for Rodgers. That's his big complaint. And we saw the owners coming clean with the supporters last week in the programme notes, or during the week, I should say, to say that, look, they, they spent so much over the last few seasons, they don't have the money there to spend on transfers. They brought in one player, without face, who stayed on the bench today. And Brendan Rodgers just looks really, really unhappy. And you just wonder, you know, has he kind of 
packed it in almost himself and, and could we see him maybe leaving before Christmas? Um, I think if, the, if there's a disconnect between what the owners can give you and what you, you as a manager want to, to achieve with your team I think that that's going to cause disruption at the club so I wouldn't be surprised if I'd see Rodgers leave over that I know he had similar arguments with, with Liverpool about their um, that they had a group of people that the was transfer committee, transfer committee. Yeah. and I know he didn't agree with that and eventually one of the reasons he's left Liverpool was because he called that out he says I don't know who we're signing that's down to the committee and it's one of the reasons that, that um, I think Liverpool lost patience with him and, and moved them on and um, I felt like he had a freedom to sign who he liked and he had that um, he had ultimate control of the football club, really, but he delivered success for them, so that's what came. I think when he got the job at Leicester, it was maybe to try and push on and challenge for Champions League places and to try and break that monopoly of the top four um, and always be in the top six. But again, you can't help businesses business around the world have been affected by loads of different things. Some clubs have come through stronger, some haven't, and Leicester are one of, one of the ones that have struggled. And I, I think Leicester fans would rather the club was run digital, dil, diligently rather than overspending and something happen where the club gets put into trouble financially. So from that point of view, I think uh, that the owners have to be careful. OTB AM. All right, Alan Quillen is with us. Alan, good morning to you. How are you getting on? Morning, lads. Um, thanks. Natural order restored at the weekend. An absolute hammering <laughs> handed out by the All Blacks to Argentina and Springboks beating Australia. Uh, so is that is that the truth of the situation? Is that really where we are at the moment? The previous week was a bit of a fluke or what's what do you think? It's it's difficult to to gauge where they're all at now, um, Jar. I think uh, you know we had a situation with Ireland where they won that second test, and you think is there going to be that kind of a reaction in the third test? Um, that didn't happen. Ireland obviously went on and won. This was a similar situation for Argentina. Could they kind of deal with kind of that angry response from from New Zealand, um, and they weren't able to? It was a complete role reversal from last week. New Zealand struggled at the breakdown. Argentina were very physical, winning last week, and the opposite was the case this week. In fact, in both matches, it was the opposite. It was an angry reaction that Argentina and Australia couldn't deal with. Um, so, yeah, the way the rugby results are gone, the rugby championship results are gone. They're 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 quite strange. Um, you get one big performance, and then you lose the following week, and vice versa. And it's been happening all the teams and Argentina. Um, New Zealand are top of the top of the pile nine on ten points. The four teams they've both they've played four, lost two, won two, each of them. But um, they were pretty ruthless. Uh, New Zealand this week, I think the conditions were really terrible in Hamilton, and their accuracy and execution was so much better. And they were very aggressive, and um, so I think that gives them hope again. That and I and I've said this probably from since before the Ireland tour. Um, I think this team are impatient. They're obviously not as good as the teams that won previous World Cups and, and particularly the team in 2015, which was probably one of the best teams we'll ever see. Um, but given that, you know, for the first time in their history last week, they lost three consecutive home matches. Um, they're breaking, making a lot of kind of un- unwanted records, if you like, this group. But Ian Foster stuck with the the same players this week and give them a chance and they did respond but um, I don't think they've been properly coached um, it sounds crazy for you know historically the best team in the world um, they were Joe Schmidt is obviously kind of involved with a hands-on approach now and 
Um, I think they're a side that, and, and what I've seen them in the last few months is they're pretty impatient to try and score after two, three, four phases. And they're probably used to doing that. And then when it doesn't happen, they force things a little bit. And um, so I think they they probably uh, can take a lot of confidence out of that. And it was a ruthless performance. They were very, very aggressive. aggressive. But if you're a New Zealand rugby fan now, you would want them to be consistent, even if they lose a game here and there, which they probably will uh, going forward, that they're in the fight and it's not... It's not a, a poor performance that they're getting, but that was so much better from them this week. Um, one of the things that you wanted to talk about was the, the difference between the referees week on week in the rugby championship. Um, and it's always interesting because, like, uh, very subtly between the first and the second test, Ireland brought up that specific issue of the New Zealanders coming through the rooks and uh, taking the man out in the far side of the rook. They got pinged for it the following week. We got a lot of penalties. It helped us flip field position and we won the game I'm not saying it's the only reason we win the game but certainly it helps um, it, ma- it makes a huge difference Ger. it makes a huge difference and that was that was the issue for Ireland and again the last two weeks complete change in the, the refereeing and the decisions that went to either side and uh, last week I was going to just make the point that uh, the New Zealand coaching ticket made a big play about uh, bodies not rolling away and lying on the side of the rook and Czech is like well you know all about it and uh, lo and behold, something changes this week. And you're kind of thinking, like, again, not to bring it all back to Razzie, but Razzie goes on this crazy offensive. The video gets leaked. And it just seems as if if you're not complaining about the referee, if you're not in advance warning the referee about the opposition, then you're not playing the game at the moment. Yeah, and it's 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 becoming very, very frustrating for, for coaches right across the board. Um from URC to Champions Cup to international matches, um, you you get a bad performance and you get some kind of crazy decisions. And we, we see what's happening with VAR in, in the Premier League at the moment. You know, you have video referees, I think, uh, trying to help the referees out, out on the fields. And rugby is very difficult at times. You know, it's hard to... It's very easy to go back and look in videos and see players coming in from the side, players not rolling away. Um, different things that that should have been penalised, not getting picked up, um, and <laughs> rugby is a game that seems to kind of go one way very, very much. Everyone will have a decision here or there, but I thought in both those games last week, um, the referee was 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 really poor in the Argent- New Zealand Argentina game and the Australia South Africa game. Um, I thought that it was very inconsistent and it does have a massive effect. And you you correctly point out that Ireland had big issues with New Zealand at the breakdown in that first test in July. Um, they were highlighted and a lot of stuff changed the following week. Um, and Jakob Piper ref the second test and you could continually hear him warning New Zealand about side entries, taking players out beyond the breakdown, which didn't wasn't penalised in the first test, and the the frustration, the crazy thing there, I I couldn't believe that New Zealand kept doing the same thing because I always remember Joe Schmidt and, and stuff coming out of the Irish team when they went through that period from kind of fourteen up to the World Cup that he had this policy of um, you know highlighting incidents after a game that weren't penalised. 
probably should have and could have been penalised against Irish players and how they prevent those kind of pictures that they're presenting. New Zealand didn't adapt to that situation at all from the first test to the second test. And then, lo and behold, I think it was three or four penalties in in, 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 the, in Dunedin, that second test that they were penalised against. And we saw a lot, the similar trait last week. Um, Paul Williams refereed the the Australia-South Africa game. And... <sighs> I thought some of his decisions were decisions were baffling, um, and they had a big effect on the result and, and caused a lot of frustration to the South Africans. Uh, Nika Amash Ukeli, the, the Georgian referee, who's relatively inexperienced at international level, I thought he was really really poor in that that first test. Um, and if you're getting away with stuff, I know it from my own kind of experience, if you're getting away with kind of slowing ball down at breakdowns and stuff like that by the referee, you're going to keep doing it. It's it's not that um, um, it's just if a referee doesn't warn you, you're, you're going to keep fighting for the ball and um, you know, lying on the wrong side and all that stuff and, and obviously when you play New Zealand you want to try and stop their flow. So I thought last week the referee was really really poor. I listened to Nigel Owens talking about it as well and he kind of he was the one who was really... I had this feeling after the game, but he spoke openly about it last week. And that needs to be sorted out, that you get it. You, you, you don't need a Razzie Erasmus. Or, but yeah. all these coaches, Ger, do they all do this I know that, but internally. I, yeah, I know. We, we know that they do it internally. Like, uh, not to revisit and uh, relitigate it, um, but like the leaking of it is the, is the bit where... Uh, and I, I think as well the um, the tone and the language that was used. But I, I, you know, if you're not doing that now, if you're not trying to influence the referee, then you're actually putting your team at a disadvantage because they they do seem to be very easily influenced. Yeah, well, I think uh, Joel Juge, um the head of the referees, like he will do the feed, give the feedback to all these players. And in fairness, um, they, they'd be pretty harsh on on decisions they go through with a fine tooth comb. So it's hard being a referee and. You know, Razzie's thing probably um, is not the right approach because, um, you know, you, you're, you're kind of turning guys away. In fairness, they get very much exposed. They get a lot of abuse online, yeah. um, which we don't want to create a situation like that. But I, I think collectively, without kind of individualizing this, there's always going to be one or two decisions where, you know, a team have a line out five yards out, they go up, somebody grabs a hand. It's not seen by the referee. It's not seen by the assistant referees and the opposition win the ball, clear their lines. That try that that situation was a try scoring opportunity for a team and maybe would have won the game. You have a culmination of those little things at scrums, at breakdown, um, a couple of decisions that were wrong, and you end up with six, seven, eight of these decisions in a game, and they do influence the scoreline big time. And it's the inconsistency of these situations. So the kind of directives from last season, particularly to start of this season, was l- less input from the TMO, um, if possible. Yeah. So the message you're sending now is, well, don't intervene in these little situations where I think they just need to work better. Um, but and Quiddy, not, were we not, not, were we not 18 months ago going TMOs were free in the games? Like it, particularly because we ended up quite often where the, the more senior referee was the TMO rather than the referee on the pitch. Yeah, absolutely. And we, did, we didn't want that. And Nigel Owens, who we, I reference again, he was one saying that they, instinctively they have to referee the game themselves. But 
Um, you know, assistant referees are always pulling for the offside line. They need to watch these small and tricky things, side entries and stuff like that. And um, it's hard on the referee. You, you you need to have a, a swivel on your, your head to, to see some of the stuff that's going on. Maybe a situation, Nathan, where the TMO can talk directly to the referee without everybody hearing it. That something has gone on that they need to have a look at. But look, it's a fine line between um, between stopping the game up. But I, my point is here. Last week you had lots of these incidents, yeah. And this week I think you've two ref games that refer, are refereed better, yeah. And we're seeing a lot of that. And look, I mean, we're, see, we're seeing a reaction kind of performance from the referees. So look, it's a difficult job, but definitely. Um, and and like, you, you do forget as well that obviously you hope that this is the referees, you know, and the panel of good referees being built and broadened. So that by the time the World Cup rolls round, we're not left with inexperienced referees who are crumbling under the pressure, as we've seen at World Cups before. You know, like wasn't it the Scotland? And to, and to be fair, and to be fair, Jerry, they do review the games and they're kind of yeah. they do get a fair rap on the knuckles from Joel Juge and all the time. Yeah, no, and um, that's as it should be, really. I, you wanted to ask about the Merging Ireland stuff. Yeah, obviously this was announced last week, so they're going for a three-game mini-tour in South Africa. I was listening to Mike Prendergast uh, talk about it from a Munster point of view and how, again, they're just going to have to adapt and accept the fact that the player is going to be missing for what will probably end up in maybe up to a month uh, all in. And whether it's the right thing to do mid-season to be bringing these players away from their province, like it does seem to undermine the URC massively. Yeah, it's it's hard. It's a hard one, Nathan. Obviously, you know the international team will get preference, and 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 you know it's it's twelve months from now they'll be in France for a World Cup. So um, I didn't know anything about this, or very few people knew anything about it. Um, I think the, the the provincial squads, the four provincial squads throughout Ireland, will will obviously deep down be a little bit frustrated. They're trying to build for or in two weeks. They, um, well, it's the the weekend after next. They're in URC action, and um, you don't want to start out, you know, in particular months are away to Cardiff, then they're away to Dragons. Um, if they get a number of their players taken out, you know, will it affect those early rounds? Leinster can probably cope with it a little bit better, um, depending on when their internationals are kind of integrated. I don't think they'll play the first couple of games, um, but. Yeah, certainly it's uh, it's kind of a catch twenty two. If if it depends the caliber of player that's brought, um, like I presume it'll be some of these guys who are in New Zealand, um, and it's a difficult situation because if they go there and play games and it benefits them, and we're talking about this next year World Cup, saying it was a masterstroke that you know Ireland developed more strength and depth, uh, built more confidence. Um, got that block of kind of coaching and preparing together. We'd be saying it's a great thing, but it, it it's it's a tricky one. I'm not really sure. Um, but look, the provinces have big squads. They've got to adapt and just go with it. And uh, usually, the Irish provinces are up near the top of the table anyway. So I don't think you get any sympathy from from the Welsh or from the Scots or the Italians. Um, like, does Kieran Frawley go and play every minute of that half, or do they? Um... Well, that'll be the interesting thing, as Quinny said. Is is this a reaction to the New Zealand tour, where there wasn't much experimentation, and while those guys got the midweek games, that 
do they now bring them down again and actually give them a lot of game time? I guess part of Aquini as well is getting used to that environment of games quickly together, reacting, how the Ireland management team works, how they analyse games, how they feedback information and and getting players used to it. But I, I think that'll be the most interesting thing. Is it the Kieran Frawleys or is it a level below that? Guys who are maybe even barely getting into the provincial squads? Yeah, well, we don't we don't know that yet. So um, I, I think, look, if you're... I think that you'd kind of be handpicking a number from each province to try and keep it fairly even, if 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 possible. You know, if you take ten or twelve from from Leinster and three from Munster and four from Connacht or you know four or five from from Ulster, I think if they kind of balance it out a little bit, there won't be much given out. But look, they've got to pick who they think is best. You're not bringing Jack Carty. I don't know. I don't know. I think someone like well, Jack Crowley and Munster, if you're talking about an out half with potential to maybe you bring, to maybe get up the next maybe, level. Like Carty obviously was injured and so couldn't mm. go, and so maybe you do bring Carty and say this is a chance for you to get into the World Cup squad, and we're going to pitch you like it's a dogfight between you and Frawley to play these three games and how you appear in training and how you appear in the meetings is what we're judging you on. Like I, I don't know unless yeah, and and if it's if it's an emerging Ireland, I think it's it's kind of the next level down. I think the whole reason of of having the the matches would be to bring, you know, probably from thirty onwards. Um, you know, not from fifty onwards. You Jacob, know what I mean? It's Jacob not, Stockdale is he in the squad? Yeah, well, if he's he's back playing, and that's a big boost for Ulster and Ireland as well. He's been out for over a year, which is, um, you know, he's obvious obvious international quality and talent. So, yes, of course, he. I think he should go, but I think they could. They kind of bring as many as um, it's the next level of guys who they think maybe they can get five or six of these guys to step up and really believe in them. You said it, Nathan, there. I think the whole benefit of being away for over three weeks together and as a group is the preparation, the individual stuff with the coaches, um, the video analysis, um, all that kind of stuff and building confidence and belief that they can you know, step up to that international level. I've always said this, and I've seen it in my own career, when when young players come in training with the Irish squad, um, they kind of grow a foot taller. They believe that, you know, if it's managed right, some guys can lack a little bit of confidence if they if they play and they don't play well. Um, but emerging players and young players being in, in an environment that's pretty intense. And, you know, I think a lot of it would be to get them up to speed with... Um, the type of game, the type of coaching, and and maybe some of them might get a, a, you know, obviously a lot of them would get a look in then for Fiji for November and, and with a possibility of Fuden squeezing into the Six Nations squad. So overall, I think it'll be beneficial. And look, it has to happen. We've had, um, we've asked for things to be, you know, done differently uh, because of the disappointments of the last World Cup. This is something different. This isn't something they just picked and choose, decided to do after coming back from New Zealand. I think it was probably in the offing and the planning before that. And um, I think overall, the, the Irish squad and, and, and the World Cup preparations have to take uh, have to take preference. I think that's fair enough. I think um, if they didn't do something like this, and we were, you know, uh, so I wonder is there something specific that they're looking for? Is it is it frawley like? Or do they put possibly? Well, maybe if they're like, going to South I, Africa, I, maybe I, it's the front row, and they're. I, I think it's very difficult to go down and play the Griquas and the the Cheetahs and and really know where they're at. Um, let's be honest. Um, you know, 
some of the provincial A teams could probably give them a go. A go or a, you know, I'm not being disrespectful. One thing they will get is a real physicality. There's no doubt about that. But from a skills point of view, I think they'll they'll be fine. So you're not exposing these guys to international uh, standard kind of pace, tempo, all that kind of stuff. But I think it's more the internal building blocks that they can they can try and achieve with the group and spend time with the coaches because yeah. you know even though they're the Irish coaches you know they're around all the time they don't have this hands-on approach with a lot of these young players so I think they look at what they really look at the skill development and where guys need to work and what they need to do to get up to the next level so I think that could be incredibly beneficial for, for both sides Alright we got to leave it there Alan good stuff thanks a million Cheers thanks guys Alan Quillen giving us his thoughts there uh, as he is every Monday and every Friday here on OTBAM. A reminder that Braeburn Coffee is the official coffee partner of OTB. Every week we give one lucky viewer a €100 voucher to spend on some Braeburn Coffee goodness at an Apple Green store near you. To enter, just check out at Off The Ball on Twitter. Like and retweet our Braeburn competition post and you'll be in the draw. Braeburn Coffee never compromises on quality or taste to give you the best on-the-go coffee experience on the road. Available at Apple Green today. Right, um... Still to come, Kenny Cunningham's full-time response to Man United against Arsenal. He wasn't having the stepovers just before Anthony's Oof. goal. He no. was like, I was, I was like, uh, 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 Kenny, come on. He's for tricky wingers. Yeah. I mean, come on. That's it. There's a thin line, like, is he going to be Ronaldo or is he going to be Nanny? Was Nanny? What's wrong with Nanny, was there, actually? Well, he won plenty of medals. Exactly. He, I mean, Nanny no, The only thing that he was angry about was VAR. Uh, which I think we're about to hear, are we? Yeah. yeah. All right. So we're back tomorrow. Uh, Shane Hannon's in the studio. We're going to look ahead to another massive night for Vera Powell's side as they travel to face Slovakia. They're already obviously there. Sue Rotten's going to rejoin us. Jenny Claffey uh, talking tennis. Matt Williams on the show as well. OTB AM. With Gillette. Get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor with exfoliating bar.